This is Unfilter, episode 279 for May 9th, 2018. You support bombing military installations, right? Well, no, I support breaking Iran's control over the nuclear fuel cycle at certain key points, the uranium enrichment facilities, the uranium enrichment facility, by that or whatever whatever we can use. So that would be military action against Iran? Absolutely. And wouldn't that start a possible war? So let's say Israel attacked Iran because Obama won't. Uh, There would not be a general war in the Middle East. I think the Saudis would clandestinely cooperate with Israel. So you would think if we get a Republican president, you think that Republican president will go after Iran, break the deal, and go forward? And that what you would support? That I would support it, but it yeah. depends on who it is, and it depends on what happens in the next eight, 18 months. guys yeah hi it's me it's time again for the uh, chris and chase show where we bring you the news that you shouldn't be watching you know actually i don't think that sounds good let's call this show unfilter the news that you shouldn't be watching i think that's a much better sounding name Yeah, we watch the news so they don't have to that's you know i like you know write that down hmm. that's a good slogan put that somewhere we should put it on a website hey buddy it's good to be unfilter. back show. hey man how you doing it's we're here wow what a week it's been a really <laughs> really crazy week i'm glad no we're back kidding we had a patron-only episode I last week, so if you are a patron, go get an hour-long exclusive episode that covered a bunch of stuff going on last week, but yeah. we've got the essentials for you this week, plus everything that's developed. Of course, we got the new CIA director's hearing, where they were trying to vet her to see how she felt about torture. That was today, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trump pulled out of the Iran deal yesterday. He pulled his card out. We'll talk about the ramifications of that, what's been building to that, and why this is really Bolton's move. We've got a little cyber and an update on the Mueller investigation. We'll wrap the whole thing up with a high note. And as always, we got a busy overtime. And isn't it today like Red Alert Wednesday for the whole uh, you know net neutrality yeah, thing? Yeah, as for well? the uh, Congressional Review Act, which is going to happen. We're gonna. It's going to happen. Um, I got some clips. I got. I actually put a little a little package together for uh, Tech Talk Today on that topic. Ooh, so it's yeah. a little cross promotional mm-hmm. opportunity. Yeah, a little Tech Talk today. If you want to like check that. that out, nice. Now, Mister Nunes, what do you say we start with a well established segment on the Unfiltered program, and that is. The cyber. ASL, buddy. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. So um, one of the important aspects to cyber defense is practicing for a cyber attack. And so NATO members have gotten together for the 8th annual cyber attack scenario. Is this a land party? <laughs> it's exactly yeah. that. Wow, that's really what it is. Yeah, this, is a... what, this is when governments get together and have a land party. <laughs> The Department of Defense has a proposed budget of $686 billion for 2019. And as you can imagine, the lion's share of that money goes to planes, ships, weaponry, and personnel to fight a conventional war. But the U.S. and its allies are also preparing for a new kind of warfare, fought not on land and sea and air, but across computer networks. News Hour Weekend Special Correspondent Christopher Livesay has a story from Tallinn, Estonia. The clock is ticking as NATO jumps into action to protect one of their own. There are NATO nations that have deterrence force troops on the island of Borrelia, and they're trying to deter aggression from Franzonia. What? Borrelia's power grid has been hacked. What? It's water Chris, system- I've not heard of this country before. Where is this country located? <laughs> you haven't been to Borrelia before? I've never been to Borrelia. Is that is that near, like, uh, the Solomons? Or? You better freak out because... Uh, Oh, wait, it's just a drain. Contaminated. 
drones, they need to fly their mission around. And its surveillance hey, drones Windows 10. Force, I see that. leading yeah. Europe to the brink of war. It may be um, attacked this way. No, you haven't missed the latest news from Europe. Oh. This is not real war. Oh. It's a war game. The largest live-fire cyber defense exercise in the world. Want to play Involving game? more than 1,000 experts from 30 nations. It's called Locked Shields. The nerve center of the operation is a hotel ballroom in the picturesque Eastern European city of So Tallinn. it is a land party. Yes. They rented a hotel. Yes, it is. They're exactly. playing Counter-Strike and Battlefield. Uh, what, it is 100%. It is a nation land party. Wow. It's 100% what it is. They get a nice, swanky hotel, and they do this every year. I love that, because I used to do that a lot. <laughs> now, uh, everyone's buddy, John Mad Dog Matthias, uh, says that a pretty significant cyber attack is likely going to prompt a NATO member to declare war in response. Um, I understand that NATO is not going to rule out invoking Article 5 of its charter should one or more member nations find themselves under a serious cyber attack. This is during a hearing, by the way, so this is off the C-SPAN feed. Can you clarify under what circumstances Article 5 might be invoked in the case of a cyber attack? Uh, it would be a hypothetical, as you, as you understand, Senator, but I think that as we come to grips with cyber, uh, if, if they get to the point of having a massive attack with cyber, I mean one that threatens life, that shuts off the power to hospitals and, and communities, in the middle of winter, obviously that would be a significant, you know, attack. That's quite the scenario that he laid out there. Yeah. Hospitals in the middle of winter. <laughs> like, it's very specific. And it's snowing. Yes. And it's under 30 degrees. <laughs> and the roads are impassable. Right. <laughs> and there's Let's, nothing on TV. Right. And we're out of food. But it would have to be weighed against all the other things that could be done, too. Even then, it doesn't mean the only response is military. There might be better economic responses to whoever did it. As you know, uh, attribution is always a challenge in these things. So we'd have to make sure we're firing on the right target, whether it be with economic sanctions, with military responses, or whatever it took. So, in other words, yeah, we'd do it if we had the right evidence. Now, so you heard about uh, a general mad dog, uh, Secretary Mateus there, talking about general secretary talking about um, cyber and the cyber and about hospitals in winter and all of that. I, I just thought for contrast, because we've never done this on the show before, because I, I very rarely find Chinese news in English. And I got a clip of Chinese news. It's, it's actually out of Taiwan uh, news about a cyber attack against what sounds like a badass version of American parks. And they're super chill about the whole thing. It's, it's a totally different way of dealing with cybersecurity. The nation's major science parks last month alone were hit with a total of 6.8 billion cyber attacks. Science parks. Not parks. Science parks. Science parks? What is a Taiwanese science park? Uh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I want to go to a science park. That sounds fun. Science parks last month alone were hit with a total of 6.8 billion cyber attacks, according to the government. Science and Technology Minister Chen Yangji has vouched for the nation's data security, saying the situation is under control. Chen says due to Taiwan's unique geopolitical position, one third of the world's cyber attacks are either directed at Taiwan or pass through the nation. He added it was not easy for hackers to steal scientific and technological secrets, as Taiwan's facilities are all equipped with cybersecurity me mechanisms 
to block attacks. So well, that's good. They got they got Norton antivirus. That's good. <laughs> they got Norton antivirus. Apparently, you notice the tone difference there. Like, yeah, I mean, they they banged on us, but we get like the majority of the world's uh, cyber attack they traffic pass through. Yeah. And uh, you know what? We just make sure we keep our patches up to date. We got Norton installed. Like, yeah. it's a totally different hype factor. No yeah, big deal. Yeah, it's a, it's a passing story. It's science parks. Yeah, it's science parks. What's a science park? No, maybe that's where Bob Mueller is doing his investigations into collusion, and it turns out that when Trump's lawyer's office got raided, the uh, the fuzz was already listening to his phone calls days before and after the raid, which has a likelihood of picking up one very important caller story. Tonight, sources tell ABC News that in the days leading up to that raid of the home, office, and hotel room of President Trump's personal attorney, federal investigators were tracking Michael Cohen's phone calls. It's called pen register. Investigators could see who he was calling and who was calling him, all in real time. Uh-oh. So is that a nap? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a hack, is uh, what that is. okay. Um, also coming out uh, via leaks and whatnot is, did you hear about Cohen's side hustle? I don't know how much play this is getting, but supposedly Cohen had like a little side hustle where he ran intelligence on Trump and would actually sell select information about Donald Trump to media outlets or corporate investigators. Oh, yeah. And, well, he also had various uh, multiple uh, multiple LLCs set up. Oh, yeah. To, I mean, and yep. I know you probably have some stories about that yeah. as well, but, man, yeah. this guy was involved in some weird yeah. stuff. He had, he had the multiple LLCs. Uh, he had the $35,000 a month retainer. Yeah, we're going to get into some of that, but we'll yeah. continue on. Yeah. But they were not wiretapping, not listening to any conversations. Just the metadata. All part of a criminal investigation, in part looking at possible secret deals made during the campaign to protect Donald Trump. Mr. Cohen, why do you think they raided your uh, office in the hotel room? It's unclear how long before the raids, investigators started tracking Cohen's phone calls. But sources tell ABC News Cohen and the president spoke just days after the raids. I do whine because I want to win. Meaning that <laughs> phone call could be on investigators' radar. Court filings already reveal prosecutors used warrants to search Cohen's emails covertly as part of their months-long investigation into possible criminal conduct. Uh -oh. The president Man. has railed against those raids. It's a disgraceful situation. It's a total witch hunt. Declaring attorney-client privilege is dead. Now, there is more to we'll get we'll get more into uh, Cohen and uh, uh, the other the other like money and things like that. But let's take a side tangent and keep talking about the Russia investigation for a moment and and Bob uh, because there's a behind the scenes investigation that is brewing that's that's trying to get to the root of some of the original OG questions about the investigation. And there's one man who's leading the charge. It's Chase's good buddy, my friend Devin Nunes. Oh God. The Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Committee making a big threat today against U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Oh? California Congressman Devin Nunes says he's going to push to hold Sessions in contempt of Congress. He's accusing the attorney general of withholding documents in the House Intelligence Panel's probe of government surveillance. Take a listen. Two weeks ago, uh, we sent a letter to Attorney General Jeff Sessions, a classified letter, Mm. Uh, it, per usual, it was ignored, uh, not acknowledged, just completely ignored. So last week we sent a subpoena, and then on mm. Thursday we discovered that uh, they are not going to comply with our subpoena. So what are you going to do about very it? Very important information that we need. So what are you going to do? 
thing left that we can do is we have to move quickly to hold the Attorney General of the United States in contempt. And that's what I'm going to press for this week. Now, there was a little bit of information that came out after this, uh, and that was specifically that it, it seems that a part of the report, their memo that they released, that the Republicans released about their findings of the Russian investigation, one of the pieces that was redacted, which they did a little unredaction on Friday, just a little news dump on the Friday where they took out a redaction and they re-released the memo. And in the re-release of the memo, it says in there that the FBI says that Michael Flynn did not lie during the questioning. Huh? Yeah. That Michael Flynn did not lie during questioning, which is which is odd because that's what Mueller has been. So, anyways, so I why have, would he plead guilty then? I exactly. So I have a I have some clips I'll play in overtime to to because I, I have to I have to dig more into that because right. that's really odd because that came out on Friday. There was really nothing about it. I didn't even see it until earlier today. Yeah, so that's strange. It's very odd. Yeah. And so I got some more clips in the overtime that might cover it. But I want to talk. I want to keep again on the Russia investigation for a moment. There was a new twist in this whole thing. There's Stormy the Stormy Daniels storyline has been playing into the Russia investigation in such that. Bob Mueller's investigation has expanded into covering campaign finance fraud. And it's starting to look like potentially Cohen's payments to Stormy Daniels and maybe other porn stars were finance fraud for uh, campaign finance fraud. Uh, and uh, and because they were they were contributions on behalf of Donald Trump that benefited his campaign is is the essential premise there. And Giuliani was recently hired as the new fixer. Now that Cohen's been taken out of play, Giuliani's come in as a new fixer. I talked a lot about this, not a lot, but we played some great clips in the patron exclusive episode. Uh, but but that's Giuliani's new job. He's, a, he's he, he on paper he's a lawyer. In reality, he's a fixer. He's 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 used to working with mob bosses. He's a fixer. And Giuliani's come in. And he's fixing the Stormy Daniels situation? They funneled it through the law firm. Funneled through the law firm. The payment to Stormy Daniels was funneled through an LLC, like Chase was just mentioning. And the president repaid it. The president's lawyer and longtime supporter, Rudy Giuliani, dropping a bombshell on Fox News, claiming that the president repaid his personal attorney, Michael Cohen, for the $130,000 payment to porn star Stormy Daniels. Now, Chris, uh, I'm a little confused. You know, I'm just you know, your normal Joe independent guy out there. I thought he said on Air Force One that he had no knowledge of this. In a hush agreement to silence her about an alleged sexual affair she had with President Trump back in 2006. I said 130. He did, in fact. He said, yeah, you'd have to talk to Michael Cohen. That's right. Sexual affair she had with President Trump back in 2006. And I said 130,000. He's going to do a couple of checks for 130000 When I heard uh, Cohen's uh, retainer of 35000 when he was doing no work for the president, mm. I said, well, that's how he's repaying. That's how, he, how's he, how he's repaying it, with a little profit and a little margin for paying taxes. Do you understand what he's saying there? No. It's, it's, it's beautiful. So it's, it's so beautiful because what Giuliani's doing is he's just putting it all out there in an embarrassing, clear way. He's saying... He got in as Trump's new lawyer. He looked at the situation and he said, wait a minute, you're telling me you, you pay Michael Cohen $35,000 a month? And Trump says, that's right. And he says, but what did he do for this month, this month, and this month? I don't know. Nothing. Well, then you've repaid him. That $35,000 that you pay him in a retainer covered the $130,000 check he cut Stormy. So you've already repaid it. Yeah, and now that now they're what they're, the way they're going to position this, and they're starting to. It's we'll get into why they haven't fully done this yet, but they're starting to position this as 
Well, you see, Donald is a busy man. He's got a lot of deals and a lot of golf to play and a lot of porn stars to fuck. So what he's going to do is he's just going to pay this fixer, this this personal injury lawyer, $35,000 a month. And he just pays stuff. He just takes care of stuff. And I don't know what he does with it. He just takes care of it. And so when he paid out $130,000, it's because I've been paying him $35,000 a month. And he only needs like $5,000 in profit. That's right. how he's repaying it. With a little profit. I'm going to back it up. So, here, so you can hear, you, if you listen to it with the mindset of they bring Giuliani in, Giuliani looks at the situation and says, imagine, you can picture this. You can Because Giuliani, Giuliani's politics really got formed in the fires around the Clinton era and the Mona Lewinsky scandal. And so he, he a lot of how he's advising, advising Trump, I believe, is based on his experiences watching the Monica Lewinsky scandals and the way Bill handled that. And so what he's coming now to Trump with is just come out and say you fuck the porn star. Nobody's going to care. It's fine. And you've been paying this Yahoo $35,000 a month. So you've more than repaid him for what he cut a check for, even though those two things were never explicitly meant for each other. Right. Yeah. Your problem solved. There was no campaign finance. It was just part of business as usual. Problem solved. Rudy just fixed it for you. Yep. And if you go into this clip with that mindset, you can hear him explaining it. ...affair she had with President Trump back in 2006. And I said, 130000 He's going to do a couple of checks for 130000 When I heard uh, Cohen's uh, retainer of 35000 when he was doing no work for the president, mm. I said, well, that's how he's repaying. That's how, he, how's he, how he's repaying it, with a little profit and a little margin for paying taxes. But Giuliani adding the payment was perfectly legal. That money was not campaign money. Sorry, I'm giving you a fact now that you don't know. It's not campaign money. No campaign finance violation. First off, by the way, you can't say fact and then follow up with that kind of a sentence because he doesn't get to determine whether whether or not it's a campaign finance violation. Yeah, it could still technically be a and campaign finance. Because finance. obviously it happened what a, a, within five days of and, the election. And that was meant to benefit the president's Absolutely, election. Absolutely, yes. So it could still be campaign finance Absolutely, fraud. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but uh, I think Giuliani is getting, oh, Giuliani was drunk. Nobody... Nobody expected him to say this. The president had no idea he was going to say this. Giuliani is making a fool of himself. Every late night show has had some fun with this. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing for sure. Yeah. I, I, I am without a shadow of a doubt that, they, that Trump and Giuliani had a conversation before he goes on to Fox oh, totally. with Hannity. And he said, Mr. President, you just got to come clean about this. We'll just change the narrative a bit. You can say you didn't know he was using the retainer for that. So you never lied because you didn't know that's what it was being used for when you're on Air Force One. So you're clear there. And we will grab the narrative by the balls now. Because right now the media has been, has been hammering you for months by controlling the narrative. And this is an opportunity for us to come in and once again start setting the agenda on what they report. And so I'll go on the air. I will say this on Hannity's program. Everybody will be giving Hannity references. It'll give Hannity a huge boost. That's your buddy. It's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. And then he's able to play he's able to play good cop, bad cop. So Rudy's the bad cop, and Trump can say, Oh, well, it's not quite that. I didn't know. Like he can start play you know, yeah. I, I think everybody's been giving Rudy a hard time about this. I think this was a calculated move. Oh, totally. It was not campaign money. Sorry, I'm giving you a fact now that you don't know. It's not campaign money. No campaign finance violation. 
the revelation seeming to contradict the president's own denials. President Trump recently told reporters aboard Air Force One that he was not aware of the payment. Do you know about the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels? Then why did you But Giuliani's saying that explanation is still plausible. I believe that's what He didn't know about the specifics of it, as far as I know. But he did know about the general arrangement that Michael would take care of things like this, like I take care of things like this. Tonight, Stormy Daniels' lawyer saying, quote, this is a stunning revelation. Mr. Trump evidently has participated in a felony, and there must be serious consequences for his conduct and his lies and deception to the American people. Yeah, Daniels, uh, Stormy, there, her lawyer is just making hay out of this. I'll have another clip in the overtime about that. But um, So then Trump comes out the next day and says, oh, I, look, Rudy, I love him, but he's an idiot. Rudy is a great guy, but he just started a day ago. But he really has his heart into it. He's working hard. He's okay. learning the subject I want to matter. say something real quick. He said he started a day ago, right? So he shouldn't be going on prime time with Hannity, going on with George Stephanopoulos and yeah. making the circuit yeah. if he's not fully up to speed with what's going on. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't he believe wouldn't. The, I, he wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I don't believe the president. And here. that's not sorry. necessarily denial either. No, it's not. Yeah. It's but, pretty good. Yeah. It's, it's, an, it's a nice misdirection play for sure. Mm-hmm. So the reason, so you might be wondering, why are they even talking about this? I think this is going to go somewhere eventually. I don't know. I, I doubt it's going to lead to uh, him leaving office, like no. uh, Stormy's lawyer uh, says, but I think it's going to go somewhere. Well, it's very hard for the president, and we've known it just based on his general history, for him to admit wrongdoing or come out and change stories and, and do this kind of thing, or just do the constant misdirection, which I think is what's going on right now. And, you know, people, like you said, some people are like they don't really care. Just come out and say it already. People already have an idea. They they already pretty much. I think they believe Stormy. They they believe something did happen. Yes, they believe that there was hush money. Um, and now you can't really deny it much anymore. Especially now you're changing not, the not story. After Giuliani goes yeah, exactly. Out I mean, you can't. So why continue to deny it? And I think the only reason why they're continuing to deny it, and then this is a, just a theory, is because the whole ca- campaign finance situation. Hmm. It came so close to the election that it does throw off a lot of red flags. All right, well, we'll keep watching. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also uh, have more on Giuliani and why he's really on Trump's team now in the uh, supporters' exclusive episode. But I want to I talk about the Iran deal. Yeah. Um, when we were watching this go down during uh, uh, when Obama was and, and John Kerry were really trying to land this thing, yeah. I didn't really come on the show with a strong opinion on it. It just was like it's like one of those things like even when Obamacare was uh, was we were on the air when Obamacare was yeah, coming around its way. and we didn't take a strong position on it until afterwards. And now I've now I now I'm without health insurance. So obviously, I have a strong opinion now, but I wanted to. Um, I wanted to watch it unfold and see how something as complex as Obamacare or as complex as the Iran deal played out once it's actually in the real world because it's just there's so many factors. And I knew we were coming to a head about seven months ago. I played a clip on the show. I'm going to play it again. I'm going to play an extended version of the clip that gave me cold chills because the first thing I thought when I heard this clip was we're going to war with Iran. So seven months ago, I played this on the show for you. You guys know what this represents? 
Tell us, sir. Maybe it's the calm before the storm. What's the storm? So he's standing with his new cabinet, a whole bunch of new members of government, military members. Everybody just got into position. They're in the Lincoln Room. And he has this ominous sort of tone. And he says, you guys know what this represents? Tell us, sir. Maybe it's the calm before the storm. The calm before the storm. The way he says it, too. It's just... And then they say, what's the storm? The storm could be the calm, the calm before the storm. Could be the calm, the calm before the storm. What's the storm? Could be the calm, the calm before the storm. What storm? On Iran? On Iran, on ISIS, or what? What storm is? What storm is? We have the world's great military people in this room. I will tell you that. And uh, we're going to have a great evening. Thank you all for coming. You know what? A bit in the chat room, bit zero zero one zero, saying, "You know, he sounds drunk," and I'm I'm actually was leaning a little bit just the way he said the storm. You know, it's it's, it's weird. It is a little odd. It's a little odd. And I gave me that was the moment I knew this day was coming. And uh, so this is the episode where that seed was laid seven months ago. I knew, I knew this day would be here. So let's talk about the Iran deal. Let's talk about what it is and why we're getting out. What led to this? And to do that, let's go back in time to the announcement of the deal. 2015, your unfiltered program was covering it. Here is your old buddy. My good friend. Barry Sotero. Today, because America negotiated from a position of strength and principle, we have stopped the spread of nuclear weapons in this region. Because of this deal, the international community will be able to verify that the Islamic Republic of Iran will not develop a nuclear weapon. This deal meets every single one of the bottom lines that we established when we achieved a framework earlier this spring. Every pathway to a nuclear weapon is cut off. So this is 2015. Quickly after this moment, there was an old rat that came out of the woodwork. He had been under the radar for many, many years. But this was the moment that forced him to come back out into the media's limelight. And Dick Cheney came back up onto the public stage to denounce the Iran deal. The objective was no nukes for the Iranians. But that's not uh, what's happened here. The objective was uh, no enrichment for the Iranians. That's not what the treaty does. It's not a treaty what the agreement does. Basically, it's what it says within a specified period of time. Iran is going to be able to do whatever they want to do with respect to developing nuclear weapons. President Obama says it's the best deal we could get, and opponents are pro-war. You say? He's wrong. So that's Dick Cheney. He takes a hard line after it comes out. Uh, Dick Cheney Dick Cheney wasn't the only person taking a hard line. Um, you may have... You may have recalled when I mentioned John Bolton joining uh, Trump's team, yeah, I said right. he's yeah. a bit of a hawk. Yeah, a bit. Yeah. yeah. Here's John Bolton in 2017 calling for the overthrow of Iran's government. Um, now here it is after I click this. This policy review to understand what we want the outcome to be and what in the United States many of us are working toward. The outcome of the president's policy review should be to determine that the Ayatollah Khomeini's 1979 revolution will not last until its 40th birthday. Okay, let's stop here. So the 1979 revolution that John Bolton, John Walrus Bolton is referring to (laughs) is 
a revolution that was a response to a government overthrow that the CIA was involved in in the early 1950s. In the early 1950s, and this is now publicly admitted by our own government, we overthrew the Iranian government and got out a democratically elected president and got our own guy in who was a conservative hardliner. But he also happened to like the U.S. And he crushed the democratic youth and spirit of Iran. This guy was a dictator like no other. When we, when we go on our soapbox and talk about Assad, <laughs> we were the people that put the son of a bitch in power in Iran back in the 50s. And in, seven, in the late 70s, the people overthrew that son of a bitch and put an even hardliner in on the other side, but very, very, very deeply religious. And that's who we're dealing with. Now, here's the funny thing. In the 50s, the guy that we got into office, the guy that we got to overthrow the democratically elected president of Iran or supreme leader, the guy that we got into office that was a total conservative hardliner that was pro-U.S., we gave him a nuke reactor. We gave them their first nukes in the 50s. They got them from the United States of America. So when John Bolton's up there waxing on about the revolution in the 70s, you have to fully appreciate the context of this Dick's comment here. So I'm going to back it up a little bit and then see where this thing goes. President's policy review should be to determine that the Ayatollah Khomeini's 1979 revolution will not last until its 40th birthday. I have said for over 10 years since coming to these events that the declared policy of the United States of America should be the overthrow of the Mullah's regime in Tehran. This man is now the national security advisor to the president of the United States. The behavior and the objectives of the regime are not going to change, and therefore the only solution is to change the regime itself. And that's, and that's why before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. And uh, that guy is now advising the president on national security issues. You don't think he's biased in any way? <laughs> I think he's pretty solid. Yeah. 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 So b- probably before we go any further, we should explain what the, what the Iran nuke deal is, because that clip with Bolton was in 2017. The deal was finalized around 2015. So the deal was in place at that point. At that point. Yes. And, and even to this day, there is no evidence that Iran has violated the technical details of the agreement. There is, to this day, zero, zero evidence of it. Netanyahu just unveiled, unveiled a bunch of old information. Yeah, the PowerPoint. Yeah. yeah. But there's no evidence. In fact, there has been 10 separate re- reports by the International Atomic Committee that is monitoring Iran. They're, they're an international body. They are separate from the U.S. They're separate from Iran. They've issued 10 reports that say that Iran is actually complying with the agreement so far. So we should talk about what the agreement is. Iran has reached a historic agreement with major world powers over its nuclear program. But what is Iran giving up? And how does it benefit in the long run? The 109-page document boils down to five main areas. Number one, Iran's uranium stockpile. Uranium is the key ingredient necessary in order to operate a nuclear program. 
The deal requires Iran to give up 97% of its enriched uranium, taking its stockpile from 10,000 kilograms down to just 300 kilograms. That's much less than what's needed to fuel one nuclear weapon, although Iran maintains the capacity to increase the stockpile quickly. Yeah, that's one of the criticisms of the deal is that, well, yeah, they have a small stockpile now, but they could quickly restock. Number two, uranium enrichment. Uranium comes in different levels of enrichment. Now, I think this is probably the the, the least understood aspect of the agreement is they, they have uranium, which is good for energy production, civilian use, which includes scientific research, which is a very valid use. Uh, but when you want to get to weapons grade, it's a totally different scale. And this is, I think, the number one misunderstood element about the agreement. And that's why this 10 years really matters. Uranium comes in different levels of enrichment. A purity of 90% is what's needed to make a weapon. Per the deal, Iran can still produce a modest amount of uranium enriched at low levels, just 3.67%. That's a massive difference. Oh, yeah. And if Iran abides by the deal, enrichment is limited in this way for 15 years. So the seven-year figure that the Trump administration is throwing around is only the first of the things that actually begin to stop. So the original deal was 10 years on some of this stuff, but some of these, some of the deals go as far as 25 years on what they're allowed to do with their program. So when Bolton and Trump are going to start throwing around, well, it only had seven years left until it expired. That's just the first aspects of the deal. Right. And if Iran abides by the deal, enrichment is limited in this way for 15 years. Number three, reduction of centrifuges. Centrifuges are the machines used to enrich uranium. Iran has to give up two-thirds of its centrifuges. Some 19,000 used for enrichment need to be reduced to about 5,000. Iran can also have 1,000 more for research and development. So what this means is, if Iran abides by the deal, for the next decade, it will take Iran at least 12 months to produce enough fuel for a nuclear weapon. And to make sure it doesn't cheat, there will be number four. Inspections. UN inspectors will be allowed to monitor nuclear and other sites, including military ones, but Iran can challenge requests for access. So what she means by that is there's a set of established, already identified sites that they have uh, 24-7 access to, in some cases even 24-7 video streams. But if they suspect like a military base or another location is being used to enrich uranium... Yeah, that, some hidden place, right. Then they have... Is the moment they notify the Iranians that they suspect something's there and they want to inspect it, Iran has 23 days to respond. The clock starts. If they don't, they, it, it, like in 23 days is not enough time to really move an operation like this. That's right. So when you hear 23 days, you're like, well, geez, that's an that's an eternity for them to contest. Not really. Not not for the scale of what we're talking about. Not with the detection equipment that these people have. The inspectors need to provide a basis for concern about undeclared nuclear activity. Any Iranian challenge could delay inspections for up to 24 days. Critics say that could be enough time for Tehran to remove evidence it was carrying out banned activities. So what does Iran get for accepting all of this? Number 5. Sanctions Relief The U.S., the European Union, and the United Nations will relieve many energy, economic, and financial sanctions against Iran that have been crippling the country's economy. United Nations includes China and Russia. Sanctions will likely lift early next year if Iran complies with the principal requirements in... 
Now, the, the sanctions relief not only were actually quite effective, unlike our Russian sanctions, but uh, the Iranian leader campaigned on, I will make a deal to remove the sanctions to improve our economy. Right. So that was his campaign promise to become the leader. Right. So that's why that was really his motivation was fix the economy and a campaign promise. Makes sense. He wasn't necessarily a buddy of ours, but he, he had his own objectives he wanted to accomplish. So that's the deal in a nutshell. So that's why the other day when President Trump came out and announced he, we were withdrawing from the deal, it really made a dent in the universe. Tonight, one of the most significant, but not surprising, foreign policy moves from President Trump. The United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. Punishing new sanctions now back in place as the president gives some companies up to six months to wind down involvement with Iran. Yeah, like Boeing just sold a whole bunch of airplanes, like 150 airplanes to Iran. Yeah. And now that deal has to stop. Oi. And uh, so the way this works is there isn't like um, a a built-in facility in the deal for us to just pull out. Like we don't just pull out. What happens is is the president of the United States at a certain interval recertifies the deal. And the president of the United States will no longer be recertifying the deal. Once the deal fails to be recertified, sanctions resume. And uh, that is essentially what pulling out of the deal means, is that we're just not going to recertify. We cannot prevent an Iranian nuclear bomb under the decaying and rotten structure of the current agreement. The 2015 deal forced Iran to get rid of 95 percent of its nuclear fuel and allow outside inspections in exchange for relief from tough international sanctions. But the president never liked that the deal let Iran start up some activity again in 2025 and that it didn't address other bad behavior like Iran's ballistic missile program. Now, the thing is, for 12 years before the deal was signed, different administrations and different countries like our European allies tried to negotiate a no nukes ever negotiation. This whole limited time window thing came after 12 years of trying to just do no nukes. Right. It's not like they went into the negotiation with, give us 10 years. Right, no, they they, they tried, first they tried lifetime, then they go, all right, well, we're going to go back to the drawing board, and would you guys agree to a limited time, like a 20-year thing, 15-year thing? And here you are. It's a or bad deal. Were. It was a terrible deal. Horrible, horrible, horrible Iran deal. Still, his own administration has acknowledged Iran's not violating its end of the agreement. I've seen no evidence that they are not in compliance. Now, President Obama, who negotiated the deal, says President Trump's decision risks eroding America's credibility. John Brennan was his CIA director. Mr. Trump has sent a signal, do not count in the United States. You cannot believe what we say. Here at home, new sanctions might make it harder for Iran to sell its oil. That could trigger higher prices, which may mean you end up paying more for gas. Damn it, I'm just about to leave for Texas. Son of a... Anyways, so the whole thing here around uh, this this rotting, decaying deal is that, that seven-year window. Uh, and Trump Trump had a lot of motivation going into this. First of all, it was a campaign promise. Today's action sends a critical message. The United States no longer makes empty threats. When I make promises, I keep them. In fact, at this very moment, Secretary Pompeo is on his way to North Korea. 
North Korea, as you. Oh, you it. mean the the promises of repeal and replace? I mean those promises? Yeah. On day one. So the sanctions that are coming back online are going to be a lot, a lot, a lot less effective. And this is, this is something that is hard to understand unless you consider that other countries are involved in this deal. It's not a U.S. Iran deal. It's a U.S. European allies, Russia. China deal. And it, the only reason we had any leverage to get Iran this far in the negotiation table was because all of those countries together were applying crippling sanctions. And it was a worldwide effort of sanctions to finally bring Iran to the table that through years of attrition that affected their political voting cycle to get the people to vote for a candidate who was pitching a deal. And the reason why we had such stinging sanctions is because it was a worldwide effort. But now, it's just the U.S. pulling up. France, Britain, China, Russia, still all in on the deal. It's just the U.S. pulling out. So we don't have this lever of all of the countries going all in on the sanctions. Right. And so NPR had an interview with one of the original state guys who helped come up with the sanctions. And he's not so sure this is going to work. Okay, so President Trump announced yesterday that he is pulling the United States out of a nuclear deal with Iran. In practical terms, that means the U.S. will reimpose sanctions that were eased under the agreement. Richard Nephew knows about sanctions on Iran. He helped design them while working in the State Department under President Obama. He's with us this morning. Uh, Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. So what sanctions do you expect to come back into force with this decision from President Trump? Well, what the Treasury Department announced yesterday afternoon is effectively that all of them uh, from the 2013 um, you know, sanctions era are coming back. They're just coming back in two waves, with some being restarted in 90 days, so in early August, and the rest coming back uh, at the beginning of November, 180 days from now. Could President Trump be right here? I mean, that Iran will feel pain again from these sanctions and do more to roll back its nuclear program than they had agreed to under this deal? Well, I think he's he's right that Iran will feel additional pain. There, there's little question about that. The uh, sanctions regime that we built uh, relies on leveraging access to the U.S. economy, and that, that pressure ability still exists. But I do think that he is uh, dramatically overestimating Iran's own ability politically uh, to make concessions of the type that are being discussed. You know, for instance, foregoing uh, any ability to have an independent nuclear program, something Iran's been refusing for 15 years. And I think he's also mistaking the fact that um, it's not as if we didn't try this during the negotiations. We did make a good attempt to try and get the Iranians to accept deeper restrictions in the program. They just were refusing to do so. And so you don't see a possibility, though, that, that if, if you would agree with President Trump that they need to make more concessions, that, that maybe tightening the squeeze could be one way to try that. It's certainly one way to try that, but but here's the real rub. You don't have the rest of the international community behind you in doing this. And and I think the fact that Iran is complying with the current agreement makes it even more difficult. To my mind, if you want to get deeper restrictions on Iran, the right way to play this was to build up international consensus in the next few years as the restrictions start to ease that that's a mistake. And to try and get agreement on additional supplemental agreement with the Iranians or to get unified multilateral response uh, in imposing sanctions. Okay, well, let's talk about that because the... the let's not talk about that for a second. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he's. I think that yeah. guy's nailing it, though. Yeah. 
And right so, on the money. So you have to say, well, okay, so if we don't have the leverage now that uh, originally brought them to the negotiation table, and you have at least uh, figuratively, maybe if not by the spirit, but you're still for the for the sakes of uh, face, saving face, you're going to have all these nations say they're still all in on the deal. So it's going to be clear that it's the United States that made the first violation of the deal when all of the other countries, including Iran, will still be able to claim that they're following the deal, so we're clearly the international bad guys, and we clearly have lost leverage. Why are we doing this? What benefit do we get? Because if there's one thing that's true for politicians, 10 years is better than zero years. 10 years to negotiate another deal with Iran, to build international propaganda and pressure, is better than zero years. So even if, after 10 years, Iran can can just exploded onto the scene in, in, in the in the mountains of North Korea they were brewing weapons the entire time and then when it's the moment the deal collapses in 10 years they, they well at least those provisions they roll out nukes on top of these ICBMs that they've been developing and boom now all of a sudden Iran is a power well that would be awful but so what and still what right do we have to say that 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 those human beings, do not have the their own right and access to technological discoveries and achievements that are part of the natural universe. What a, what authority do we have to say that? So even worst case scenario, yeah. they're still a sovereign nation. They're still human beings that have the right to the same scientific discovery and information that we have, which is surprise. Spoiler alert: physics. <laughs> Sorry. You mean they, they go to a lot of science parks, <laughs> a lot of science parks. Uh, so why are we doing this? Well, I think I think there's a lot of reasons, and I think one of the most significant and influential reasons to Donald Trump right now is old, America's oldest man, John Bolton. The president's national security advisor, John Bolton, is with us from the White House. He's a former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Good morning, Mr. Ambassador. Good morning. Glad to be with you. So U.S. allies say that the president uh, withdrew from the Iran deal and has no plan B. What is plan B for achieving U.S. objectives? And I think that's another interesting thing to consider. If you're going to pull out of the deal, then you got something in your back pocket. Shouldn't you? At Absolutely. Least, at least sort of give a hint. Yeah. Well, John Bolton says that's already begun. Plan B. The reason why we're not talking about plan B is because now it's plan A. Well, I think Plan B is already being implemented. Uh, when the president signed the decision memorandum yesterday, he began the process to put very strict U.S. sanctions back into effect. That'll have a significant uh, ripple effect on uh, Iran's economy. So what Trump did yesterday, what Trump signed, was a decision memorandum. It's nothing. Yeah. It's, 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 it's stage. It's, it's political theater. That's probably something that Bolton himself wrote up for Donald Trump to sign. Wow. The only, the only action Donald Trump will be taking is inaction. By not recertifying the deal, the sanctions automatically by law reactivate. So th- him signing this memorandum was nothing more than political stagecraft. Oh, yeah. To effect that'll have a significant uh, ripple effect on uh, Iran's economy. Uh, and I think it demonstrates that uh, we're determined that we're not going to rely on paper promises. We're going to rely on real performance to stop Iran from getting deliverable nuclear weapons. And, you know, one Iranian uh, threat that you didn't mention this morning that they've made is to increase spending on their ballistic missile program, which was never covered by the Iran nuclear deal. 
that's the most valid criticism of the deal is that Iran and and has been sort of fragrantly just launching missiles uh, and then broadcasting them on their state television like look at us look at us go um so they have accelerated their missile development program uh, they're not putting nuke warheads on the missiles right but they're still destructive missiles so uh, yeah. you know you ha- you have <laughs> that is like the 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 spirit of the deal was play nice with the west and um, Iran has not been following the spirit of the deal. They've been following the technicalities of the deal, definitely not the spirit. So that is the ground Bolton has here. Spending on their ballistic missile program, which was never covered by the Iran nuclear deal. Now, why do they want more ballistic missiles? Uh, I can assure you it's not to launch weather satellites or communication satellites. This is how they deliver nuclear weapons. And I think it shows where the regime really is. So the idea here is that the sanctions will be so crippling that Iran will cry uncle, give up their enrichment of uranium, give up uh, their meddling in the Middle East and give up their missile program. Is that how this is supposed to work? <laughs> you can tell he's very skeptical. Yeah. Well, John's like, all right, you got to do this, this, this and this. So, and you think that's going to work? Right, right, <laughs> right. Because the other big rhetoric here is, well, they're the world's number one sponsor of terrorism, which is bullshit. It's a totally made up statistic. Everybody knows we're the world's number one sponsor of terrorism. Don't take that from us. We're, we are fucking America after all. Yeah. So uh, you can hear the skepticism in his voice, and um, it's because that is so pie in the sky, it's obviously never going to work. What's going to happen instead is we're going to go to war. That's what's going to happen instead. So this whole this whole idea that all of a sudden now that we have way less damaging sanctions sticks to wave around, that we're going to be able to get them to do all of these things that they haven't been willing to do now for 15 years is simply a smokescreen for war. The president's national. Oh, that was way too far of a backup there. Here we go. So the idea here is that the sanctions will be so crippling that Iran will cry uncle, give up their enrichment of uranium, give up uh, their meddling in the Middle East and give up their missile program. Is that <laughs> how this is supposed to work? That, that's a piece of it. The, the broader piece, as the president laid out in his remarks yesterday, uh, and as we're going to be discussing uh, with our European allies, we've already begun. As soon as I finish here, I'm going to get on a video conference call and continue the discussions with the British, the French, and the Germans uh, about going after Iran's other malign behavior. It's continuing support uh, for terrorism, it's military activities in the Middle East. You know, one of the theories of uh, President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry was that the nuclear deal, by satisfying Iran, by releasing billions of dollars of uh, economic resources, would change Iran's overall behavior across the region. It's had exactly the opposite effect. That is true, actually, to an extent as well. They've sort of accelerated their Middle Eastern agenda. But that would normally be considered a response to our accelerated Middle Eastern agenda. So that's sort of unfair. Right. It's like it's like, well, yeah, look what we've done recently. We've gone in and we've 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 tried to roll Syria uh, very very aggressively, and we're taking a super aggressive actions in Yemen. It, yeah, it seems like very much so. Like yeah, they're going to respond to that. Oh, absolutely. Um, so what is the overall impact here? CBS News Senior National Security Contributor Michael Morales. You're a good buddy. Oh, good old Mike Morrell. Now, the, the great thing about Mike here is uh, he's a podcaster now. Did you know that? Yeah, he does a, a show, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's got a podcast. Yeah. And uh, that's given him some insights and some new analysis. 
Yeah. Served as CIA deputy director and acting director. He joins us from Washington. Michael, good morning. Good morning, Nora. We played that clip of my interview with the crown prince because of that last thing he said. If Iran develops a nuclear weapon, would Saudi Arabia follow suit? And he suggested yes. Is that one of the deep concerns about President Trump withdrawing from this deal? Yes. So if the Iranians... Um, go back to developing a nuclear weapon and do so, there is no doubt in my mind that the Saudis would follow suit, um, and it would be likely that the Egyptians and the Emiratis um, would think about doing so as well. That is actually what's really got me upset here about this deal. Um, I got to be honest, when Trump announced this, I knew this was coming, uh, but I had a moment where I felt like I needed to take a break from the show, which is like the first time that's really happened, because this is... This is World War Three bad. This is, I, I can't put into words yeah, the I, kind of bad this is. You know, I, I've been honestly, you know, trying to figure out and justify. And even looking at, you know, straight conservative websites, a lot of people don't like this move at all on both sides. I haven't liked what he's done in Syria at all. This is, though, putting us on a war footing that's going to make us uh, confront China, Russia, and Iran. And it's all happening while we're trying to negotiate with North Korea. It is, it which, is dangerous. General which, General Mad Dog Mateus is even against it. Which takes me his back, war hawk generals. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Which takes me back to the general why, why? I mean, at the end of the day, it. I mean, yeah, I know he's trying to satisfy a campaign promise, and maybe at that moment he wasn't fully educated and informed with the uh, the small things involved well, I, with this. I, I think maybe, I know why. And, and it's part of what makes me so angry, and it's kind of why I want to take a break from the show, because it makes me so angry that I, it starts to influence my perception. Oh, totally. And I hate that. I, yeah. And it makes me want to come on the air, and it makes me want to swear and yell, and because I'll play a clip, and then I'll get into it, but it, it's, it's 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 part of the—it plays into how naive the American public is. It plays into who's really— who's really influencing our government, what what external powers actually influence our government. We're so focused on Russia, but there's actual more significant in- external influences. It plays on to, it plays into like spying and back deals. Like there's so many things here, but I'll play a clip and then we'll talk a little bit about some of them. Right. Okay, the New Yorker has a bombshell report out this morning. It says that Israeli operatives collected information on former Obama officials who were supporters of the Iran nuclear deal. Why would they do that? The report also says the operatives came from the same firm used by Harvey Weinstein. Ronan Farrow broke this story. He joins us now. That- so this firm um, is, 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 is worth a Google. Uh, so John Bolton is, the member, is a member of a group called Friends for Israel. And what Friends for Israel basically are are war hawks in the different positions of, of American political influence. And Israel wants a war with Iran. Is this is this is in front of everyone's face for every single person in the United States to witness Israel's influence over the United States politics. Oh, we talk about Russia. We talk about 4D chess playing Putin who's fishing John Podesta's emails and then just releasing what's in the man's own emails to the public via his weaponized WikiLeaks system, apparently. But the reality is out fragrantly in the open 
Israel is buying off politicians. They have people like John Bolton in the White House who are weaponizing the American political system for their own purposes. And in the opening clip, even for this show, we talk about Israel could go do their own strike. Saudi Arabia will go all in. Go all in we would resupply them. This is about what Israel wants. There is some information that we obviously have. There's information that Israel obviously has. And there is an agenda. And the reason why I played that Bolton opening clip is because this has just been a right-wing hawk agenda, the Dick Cheney's of the world agenda for years now. Well, you know, and I and I felt this when Netanyahu uh, gave it, gave his uh, PowerPoint presentation, you know, pulling from all the old data and that sort of thing. When when he was giving that presentation, and it was just like he's building the case to try to, I don't know, give Trump some some backup, if you will. So, because he knew he knew that Trump was going to pull from this, so and then immediately after Trump pulled from it, I think it was like was it t- this morning or last night or yesterday? He comes out and goes, "Yeah, we fully support what the United States did." Yep, it's quite obvious that they're 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 beating the drums, and and they they're itching for it. Yeah, and Trump That's even scary. he even referenced that presentation. Uh, he said the the information that Israel just re- there was all old information. Yeah. It was all old, and I actually, if if I if if something leaked from the CIA tomorrow or or from somewhere that said that Israel was uh, it was uh, right and that uh, Bibi's presentation was accurate and that Iran was enriching uranium at some military base that we didn't have inspectors at, I, I wouldn't be surprised because um, if if I'm looking at Gaddafi. If I'm looking at Iraq, if I'm looking at all of the nations that we've either de-weaponized or, or have made threats to, the one thing that stops ISIS showing up at your door is if you have a nuke in the Middle East. And if I was Iran, I would be seriously considering that as a defensive play because there is a very, very, very aggressive military in NATO and in the United States. So I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they are developing something. Maybe good old John Warris Bolton is right. I don't know. But pulling out of this deal accelerates the situation and makes everyone way worse off. There's no upside to the United States for pulling out of this deal. We're the aggressors now. We're the bad guys. We're the ones violating the agreement. Iran is the ones in compliance with the agreement now. This is not a good situation, and it puts us at odds with France. It puts us at odds with Germany. It puts us at odds with China. It puts us at odds with Russia. It puts us at odds with Britain. It puts the European Union, for God's sakes. They're all, they're all in on this deal, and now we're pulling out, and the benefits are hard to understand, and the ramifications seem clear. War. Well— and you know, uh, ten one hundred five just beat me to it. You know, we're this we're also a bad example of the North Korean deal. I mean, obviously, this North Korean deal is 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 upcoming as far as not deal, I should say, but the summit between uh, President Trump and uh, uh, Kim Jong Un. And so that we're going into that, and they see what happened here with this deal that has now been you know the United States is pulling out from. How would any country, including North Korea? give us any credibility and believe us yeah. for not pulling back in the future I on anything. I don't buy that analysis because I think it shows North Korea that we're serious as fuck and that we will uh, that they better they better be uh, legitimate 
on their commitments. I actually think it actually puts the U.S. negotiators in a stronger position. And I'm also willing to concede an idea to John Bolton. So I don't know if you can tell, but I've watched a lot of John Bolton footage in preparation for this episode. I've been listening to a lot of Michael Bolton. <laughs> different. Okay. Totally all right, all different. Right, got it. Okay. Uh, and John Bolton has made it clear. I got link. I got actually, I got the clips in the supporter sync, actually. Uh, he's made it clear that John Bolton believes the way this whole thing's been working is that from day one, Iran was never following the terms of the deal. That what they were doing instead was funneling money to North Korea and funneling supplies to North Korea and enriching uranium in mountains, actually, John Bolton believes, underneath mountains, in North Korea. And so that their weapons program just moved. So the inspectors were inspecting um, nuke sites in Iran, but the all the action was actually over at Kim's house under a mountain. But the reason why these two things are actually linked is now that the nuke deal was in place with Iran, which spun down the side the actual uh, the actual operations in Iran, and now that negotiations were spinning up with Kim, right. so they were taking down their their nuke deal. Yeah, I could see that. And that their test site collapsed on them. Right. It was the perfect opportunity and moment for the U.S. to pull out of the deal because now North Korea has spun down to get a deal. And the deal is still in effect for Iran, so they're sort of neutralized. Well, part of if you believe Bolton. Well, and also it's hard to believe that segment of it because the the spinning down might have been an intentional thing because they blew up basically their test site. The mountain has collapsed; they can't really do any testing in that location any longer. Yeah. yeah. So for them to say, "Oh yeah, we stopped." Well, you stopped because you have no place really to do it now. John Bolton also says that some of the sanctions that were put against North Korea that actually worked recently was because China finally stopped laundering money from Iran uh, to North Korea. That's what Bolton says. All right. I don't know if it's true, but it gives you insights into the lens in which he's looking at the situation and then probably advising Donald Trump from yeah. Mr. Friend of Israel. So when we get all worked up about collusion and all of that— it is a it is a drop in the bucket compared to the level of influence that Israel has over U.S. politics to the point where we are going to take this nation to war with Iran because our good buddy Bibi wants it. That's that's a level of collusion that w I bet Putin would dream of. Yeah. And a scary one. You know what else is a little odd and scary? What's that about? This uh, nomination of uh, Gina Haspel. For the CIA. Oh, the torture queen? Yeah, the torture queen. What's weird about it is how hard the CIA operatives and former CIA folks in the media now want her in. Which, like, what does that tell you? Like, when an out-of-control agency desperately wants this person to be their leader, it's probably a bad sign, right? <laughs> it doesn't feel right. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike Morell has been out there. Uh, of course, uh, your good buddy Hayden's been out uh, there. A bunch of others. Although about a, about 100 ambassadors are also against her nomination. But if you're not familiar with Gina, she's kind of a um, controversial pick. And in fact, so much so that she even offered to withdraw. After decades of dangerous work in her life as a spy... The peril Gina Haspel faces now is Washington politics. Uh -huh. Republicans and Democrats should come together and confirm Gina Haspel as the director of the CIA. But finding enough votes has turned into a difficult mission. So much so, <laughs> officials tell me, Haspel was prepared to step aside, concerned a bruising confirmation battle would do damage to the agency, her reputation, and the men and women she leads as acting director.
Now, that concern is rooted in the fact that she oversaw the management of a facility that was torturing prisoners. Urgently hoping to save the nomination, Friday, White House officials went to CIA headquarters to reassure Haspel the president wants her to stay. Today, officials say Haspel is committed to becoming CIA director. Former director Michael Hayden today. With a president who does not always attach his decisions to the real world, to, to data, to evidence, Gina Haspel is the one woman I want in that room. Now, this has been a fascinating position that the CIA is taking, is vote for Gina because she is a check to the president, is, is actually their pitch. What do you make of that? Vote for Gina because when you've got a crazy, loose cannon president, she'll stand up to him. She'll, she'll do the right thing. Miss Torture Queen. How is that a pitch? I, and what is that touching on? What, like, what bigger issue is that touching on? Right. Well, what, I mean, are you saying that the president's giving, uh, not unlawful, but bizarre information and orders and saying to do certain things? It's weird. Especially, but, but what, I mean, what order could, 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 uh, could Trump give that would be crazier than torture, which Bush gave, or crazier than droning an American citizen and his son, which Obama gave? Maybe the, the crazy thing is to uh, turn some of that spying internal. Maybe that's the crazy. I know we have the NSA for that purpose, but I'm saying, though, is... I'm just throwing out just yeah. wildness. No, because I, I, I couldn't think of it I either. And that's I, decent, at least. I just I couldn't think of anything. I mean, it's it's interesting that they're 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 throwing this out there as a check to the president, right? Yet the president is the one who wants her in. You know, like he's the one who's saying, "No, no, don't pull out." You're right. I hadn't even thought of that. Right. They're the ones that that nominated her, yes. and they're the ones that encouraged her to stay in. Now. I mean, they didn't pull a Ronnie on her, a Dr. Ronnie, and no. saying, you know, we, we right. want you to stay in, but, you know, if, you, if it's better for you to not go through all this and get pulled through the mud. No, they want her in. Right. So, so why I, are they playing that? It's, they're, they're lying. Yes. Yes. That is what it is. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that just yeah. that I mean, that, cinches I mean, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're really good at manipulating us. They're really good at it. The CIA is the best. Who <laughs> does not always attach his decisions to the real world. To, to data, to evidence, Gina Haspel is the one woman I want in that room. Political opposition to Haspel centers on her time after 9-11 running a secret CIA prison in Thailand, where a terror suspect was waterboarded. And later, she passed on the order to destroy videotapes of enhanced interrogation sessions. Now, that is really the issue, is that she had all of the evidence destroyed. That's really the problem. That a Senate report labeled torture. It's very concerning because... Um, those Do you know who Gina's good, good, deep, personal, personal, real, actual, I'm not joking friend is? Diane Feinstein? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Labeled torture. It's very concerning because um, those of us that worked on the torture report know some things. They're classified. And uh, th this is an important part of this woman's career. Much of Haspel's career history is classified, and that also includes achievements the White House would like to highlight. Former CIA colleagues praise Haspel's skills and 33 years of service. I can talk to you about how she did her job as a senior CIA official with the utmost um, intellectual honesty and integrity. Well, there you go. 
I mean, except for the whole uh, enabling torture part and destroying evidence. But uh, you're good, buddy. My friend. We've got a lot of them these days. Yeah, I do. i got some good friends. Marco Rubio uh, really came in with the hard, hard, hard-hitting softballs. <laughs> Thank you, Ms. Haspel. When I joined this committee seven years ago, I knew as much about the CIA as the average American. Fools. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now listen to what she says. It's odd. There's, there's more here than we're going to ever know. Obviously, I know a lot more these days. Yes, and much of it can't be shared, but there's two things that I can. The first. Classified <laughs> uh, information. So funny. It's uh. so funny, Marco. First is that it's very easy to sit back and criticize the work of the agency with the benefit of hindsight. You know, especially like criticizing things that are anti constitutional. The second is that the agency is made up of some of the smartest, most talented professionals that I have ever encountered in any field. Hmm. Uh, in my time in public service or beyond. These are men and women that could be making a lot of money in the private sector. But This is always my favorite argument. It's one I tried with my own employers in the past. You know, like, yeah, yeah, I could do more. I could be making a lot more money in other places. Yeah, yeah then why are you here, asshole? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> public service or beyond. These are men and women that could be making a lot of money in the private sector, but instead they've chosen to serve our country, many in the shadows, many at the risk of their own lives, all to keep us safe. By the way, they sacrificed this money, this time with their family, this normal life in many cases. I got to say, I hope she gets it because um, I just like that earnest face she's got going. <laughs> she's got like the like – she looks like she should be a family member with an earnest face listening. That's not water she's drinking. <laughs> um, by the way, just a little anecdote here. Uh, at the moment that she's sitting here listening to all of this, she was already acting director. The CIA made her acting director before this hearing even began because they run the country. It's in defense of the freedoms, including the freedoms of the protesters who often smear them and the activists who often slander them. Ms. Haspel, you embody everything. Oh. that I respect and admire about the men and women of the Central Intelligence Agency. And mm. I support you not just because of your qualifications, but because I want a young CIA trainee or case officer. I want today's operational officers. I want today's station chiefs. I want today's uh, all, right. all of these professionals yeah, to know right. that they, too, can one day be sitting where you are sitting today yeah. and have the opportunity yes. to lead this agency. So here is what's going on is um, in, in, you, what, you, what you would hope is the people that were involved during the worst days after 9-11, like Michael Hayden, who flipped the switch on the NSA bulk surveillance, or people like Gina Haspel, who were like third or fourth in command of the CIA and knew that torture was going on and were literally in a position to stop it. Right. And they did nothing. What's happening is instead of being punished for what they've done, for the violations to the constitutions, for the violations to what America stands for, they're being rewarded. In fact, internally, they're considered the best of the best. These are the heroes post 9-11 that did what they had to do. And Gina's one of them. And that's why there's this culture of worship around her, because she's one of the few that did what they were ordered to do during a time of war. They got them information that they needed to have. And that's why slime buckets like Michael Hayden and Gina Haspel and others like your good buddy Morell. Yeah, Mike. Good friend. The reason they're celebrated is because they are the 9-11 heroes. And these 9-11 heroes have this sort of aura around them in D.C., that they were part of the select few that that are battle-hardened, and you can't really tear them down. So she may have been in charge and been in the perfect position to stop torture, 
But instead of that getting her fired or sent to jail, she's now going to be leading the CIA. And there was a moment that just has now become average. Like, no big deal. Everybody just waits, and then we move on. And and it's just, we've normalized it. And that was a protester who just does a big old outburst during the hearing. And it was a code pink, and it doesn't even get a mention anymore on the news. It doesn't even get a mention. If you weren't watching or go back and watch the C-SPAN replay, you wouldn't even see this. We are all about bringing the most sophisticated, objective, all-source analysis we can to make sure that the president and his team have the best intelligence that we can deliver. Okay. It is hugely important. She stops. She just stops. Capitol Police, please remove her. So they call for her removal by the popo. The question is, what do you do to human beings in U.S. custody? Bloody Gina! Torturous Gina. Gina. Lying Gina. Gina. You are a torturer. Lying Gina. Bloody Gina! Anyways. So let's go back. Let's just keep she going. She had a little... Did you see that? She had a little smirk on her face. Yeah. Yeah, she oh. did. Yeah. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. She has a smirk on her face. She has a smirk. She doesn't give a F, No, Chase. she does not. She's, um... Yeah. She was asked, actually. She's cold <laughs> as ice. My new buddy, I think, Senator Harris, who I think should run for office in, in uh, 2020, uh, actually asked the only hard questions during this interview. This is the only difficult moment that Gina faced. So uh, one question I've not heard you answer is, do you believe that the previous interrogation techniques were immoral? Senator, I believe that CIA officers to whom you referred... It's a yes or no answer. Do you believe the previous interrogation techniques were immoral? I'm not asking, do you believe they were legal? I'm asking, do you believe they were immoral? I want to see this woman run against Trey Gowdy in 2020. Oh, You know what I'm saying? Yes. Senator, I believe that CIA... Did extraordinary work to prevent another attack on this country, given the legal tools that we were authorized to use. Please answer yes or no. A bunch of different senators took a crack at this. I I watched the whole three-hour stream, and they tried to get her to say, do you agree with it? Was it immoral? And what she's willing to say is, I agree with our current stance that we should follow the Army hand guide, or handbook, whatever it's called, for interrogations. Well, do you think that we shouldn't have tortured people? You know, it was a time of war, but I agree with our new moral position. Yeah. Well, that's not what I'm asking you. Yeah, but I agree with our new position now. In this country, given the legal tools that we were authorized Please to Please answer use. yes or no. Do you believe in hindsight that those techniques were immoral? Senator, what I believe sitting here today is that I support the higher moral standard we have decided to hold ourselves to. Can you please answer the question? (laughs) Senator, I I think I've answered the question. No, you've not. Do you believe the previous techniques, now armed with hindsight, do you believe they were immoral? Yes or no? Senator, I believe that... Shouldn't she be saying yes if she has this strong yeah, moral exactly. compass? exactly. I mean, it, it, Michael Morell tells me that because she's been through it, she would never do it again. She took a softball pitch and turned it into a 100-mile-per-hour th- fastball. 
That's yeah, what she man. did. She yeah, could have. She could have knocked it out of the park. She yeah. says, "Yes, I believe that they're immoral. I believe that blah 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 blah." She could have knocked it out of the park. They were immoral. Yes or no, Senator? I believe that we should hold ourselves to the moral standard outlined in the Army Field Manual. Field okay, manual. so I understand that you're, you've not answered the question, but I'm going to move on. <laughs> so I understand that you, from previous answers, are serving as the authority over whether or not CIA information concerning you will be classified or not. This is one of my favorite things about the way the CIA works. This woman, Gina Haspel, is responsible for deciding if information about her is public or not. This she, is, she decides on her own stuff. There may be some bias there. Uh, a little bit. Given an obvious appearance of conflict, will you agree to recuse yourself from the responsibility and the authority to make decisions about whether or not that information will be classified or, or not? Will you agree to recuse yourself of that responsibility and authority? Yes or no? Senator, I am following the guidelines. That's not a yes or no. Oh, my God. That exist at CIA, and there is another cl- declassification authority. It's called the IRO. I have not Haspel, interfered with Do you with believe his- that you have the authority to recuse yourself? I'll take that for the record. I, it, I, I may have the authority to recuse myself. Assuming I'm not a lawyer. Do. I don't, I'm not sure about that. Assuming you do, and I believe you do. Yeah. The, the way yeah. these works, they know the answer before they even ask. Oh, absolutely. Will you agree to recuse yourself from the responsibility and the authority of making decisions about what CIA information about you and your record will be classified or declassified? Oh, good. Another easy yes or no. Yeah, really easy stuff. Senator, if I had agreed with the proposals that have come up to because people thought it would be advantageous to me, I think I would have been um, abdicating my responsibility to follow the rules that everyone at CIA follows. Okay, and you also in this hearing have a responsibility to ask, answer the questions that are being asked of you. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a different question. I really, I really want to see this, this, this gal run. Uh, and I, I would love to see her up against Trump or Gowdy. I just think that would be a good show. Do you, would you agree that given this appearance of conflict or potential conflict, around the classification or declassification of these documents, that would you agree that Director Coates instead should have the responsibility for declassification decisions regarding your background? Senator, I think one important thing is that this committee plays a unique role to review the classified record, and we have sent over every piece of paper we can lay our hands Not on. Answering about the question. Yeah, you get the idea, yeah, right? Yeah, my word. <clears throat> my freaking word. So I think she's going to get it. Well, you know, now I can see why the president wants her in because she's kind of mad, mad dogish, like you know, bull, not bullyish, but uh, adversarial. You know. Yeah, Doesn't I want. Wanna... I want to see her get in too. I do oh, because uh, first word. of all, uh, I think it's going to be. I think it's going to make watching the C-SPAN streams <laughs> way more interesting. And second of all, cable company's going to move it to the higher tier to pay for it. it. Just totally, it's it just totally plays into the narrative I have wow. about the CIA. All right, uh, changing gears, talking for a moment now about the white helmets. <clears throat> now I don't want to. Uh, I, I I've already gotten. I've already gotten a bunch of bunch of hate mail before we even got any further because I said some bad things about BB. But I, I got to say the white helmets are are really something. Um 
So if you hear about chemical weapons attacks, that, that generally comes from the White Helmets. These are uh, people that are financed by the United States government and, and different members of the UN to provide medical aid in situations like in Syria, for example. This is where they're the they're most famous. But they operate outside of Syria as well. But Syria is where they're the most famous. And one of the things that they're the mo- most famous for is they will give medical aid to rebels and civilians – but not to anyone in the Syrian army. So they're really selective. And they will report information, but information that is anti-Assad regime, not pro-Assad regime. And so it's it's been a controversial and political group for quite a while now. And there's been some rumors circulating that the United States was going to cut off funding. And people have been left asking, what does that mean? The U.S. is reportedly freezing its funding, a controversial Syrian emergency response organization, the White Helmets. The move's being met with major disappointment by the group's leaders who say it's going to impact on their ability to save lives. The U.S. State Department has told RT that it's actively reviewing assistance programs. Its spokesperson added that Washington expects the White Helmets to continue its work as a result of additional funding by donors. In other words, we're not going to pay for it, but others will. ...backed by the U.S. The U.S. has been funding the White Helmets to the tune of more than $32 million, but the group says it's also been bankrolled by several other nations too. Although the U.S. is now thought to be cutting funding, the State Department recently did praise the White Helmets' efforts in Syria. We uh, recognize and appreciate and are very grateful for all the work that the White Helmets continues to do uh, on behalf of the people of their country and on behalf of the U.S. government and all the coalition, uh, coalition forces. They're doing incredible work. The UK, though, has reaffirmed its commitment to the White Helmets and the work they do in Syria. That's despite the group being widely criticised for some of its actions in Syria. As we just said, its members have appeared a number of times in videos of killings published by the al-Nusra terror group. The White Helmets have also posted videos which they say show them conducting rescue operations to save the lives of wounded civilians. Yes, there's been videos where, you know, a terrorist group shoots somebody in the back of the head and then um, the White Helmets come in and collect the body. (laughs) Like, that's what you're doing over there? Really? Okay. Um, We have more clips for you to follow up on, especially some stuff around Yemen, if you would like to get into that. But Mr. Chase. Yes, Mr. Chris. Before we go to the high note, I was wondering Uh if if your sack had a few notes. You know, it's been a little bit since we've been gone. Maybe some people wanted to stuff a few things into Chase's sack. You know, know, sometimes the the mail can be a little slow, and so uh, eventually they make their way into the uh, the sack. And this week, yes, we do have a sack from all you guys there in Club 33. Over there at patreon.com slash unfilter. Casey writes in and says, hey, Chris and Chase, I've been a watcher of the Unfilter program for a couple of years now. The show is fan-freaking-tastic. I often find myself thinking that Chris is a little bit too far to the R side of things for my taste. I consider myself an independent with some libertarian and some socialistic leanings. I know that those two ideologies are in conflict. That's why I am an independent. I voted for Gore in 2000, Kerry 2004, Obama 2008, Johnson in 2012, and Johnson 2016. You know what I have to say to that? What do you have to say? Calling me a Republican? <laughs> All right, then. Come on. Let's get in on it. Let's do this. No. Like like any sane person, I would have voted for Sanders in 2016 if I were given the chance. Oh, that's a, okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Uh, anyway, uh, to make a long story a little bit shorter, I joined Club 33 because I think Chris really hit all the nails on their little heads during episode 277. 
I'm a veteran of the Iraq war, and at a time I supported going into Iraq because I believed the hype at the time around weapons of mass destruction. With hindsight, I can see it was a giant mistake to invite Iraq, and uh, we are on the brink of doing it all over again. Mm. I'm pro-choice, pro-legalization of the pot and other drugs, a gun owner in support of tighter gun laws, pro-Medicare for all, anti-spying on citizens without a warrant, and I'm strongly pro-First and Fourth Amendments. I'm also strongly against Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, as I think they were both indisputably the most worst candidates for any president in my lifetime. Uh, P.S. I mined Bitcoin with the very first ASICs available, and now I mine altcoins with GPUs. I love it. Keep up the great work. You know, I, I've i gotten um, uh, a reoccurring kind of encounter when, I, when I'm like at Linux Fest or when I go out, and it's people that come up to the booths and they, they love all the Linux shows we do, but they go, hey, I'm also an unfilter. Yeah, I had a couple of people did that at uh, Linux Fest as well. That yeah. was really nice. Yeah, and... Um, there's some stories that you know they've asked me not to share, but I've people people that people that have met us have have given me stuff and they'll tell me stories and uh, it's not uncommon to have somebody who is a is a former service member go, man, have you guys been really nailing it? I'm on the inside and I've seen what we're doing, and yeah. when I listen to your show, it gives me a peace of mind knowing that somebody on the outside sees what's going on. Well, so that hits me when yeah. that happens, and you know the, a lot of times you know what else they say. It's even worse than you say it is. Yeah, and that's the scary part, right? I mean, we see our great supporters who support us, and obviously the people who don't, uh, you know, uh, support us in other ways, like you know, hanging out in our chat room and sending us kind notes on Twitter and Facebook and all that. Yeah. It, it for me, you know, there's a lot of people that see what's going on and they feel the way that we do, uh, and it's not just a feeling; they're just very observant. Uh, they're they're able to look at both sides of the fence, kind of filter in or unfilter it, if you will all the information and really come up with an educated decision. And, and the best part is we're all listening to each other. And can I, I think that's the, the key. Can I interrupt that uh, Kumbaya moment with a public announcement? <laughs> uh, so I was made aware by the back office here on the Unfiltered program uh, that um, we have currently 113 patrons whose cards are being declined. Oy. So when you look on our patreon.com slash unfilter page, the number that is represented there does not reflect the fact that 113 cl- cards are currently being declined. Oh, boy. That is a massive... So the number on our Patreon page is way off. Not accurate. Not accurate at all. But the other problem is, is that 113 is getting to the point now where it is significantly impacting the revenue to cost standpoint of this show. And I'm going to be on the road um, starting in the uh, uh, towards the end of May uh, for three or four weeks going to Linux Fest Northwest, or Linux Fest Texas, I should say. Sweet. And... Um, <clears throat> The, producing this show on the road will be the hardest job, the most stressful thing I do during the entire trip. More stressful than setting up a live streaming booth at Texas Linux Fest. More stressful than converting Linux Academy from Max to Linux. The most intense amount of work that uh, that we're gonna we're gonna have, Chase and I and producer Matt are gonna have to have lots of conversations about, and it's gonna require that I constantly am surfing for bandwidth. I mean, it's gonna be the most stressful thing I do is keep the show on the road, and and the, the the thing that really sucks is it's right now it's it's not in a profitable standpoint, and this just happens, and we probably should have been watching this more closely 
Patreon doesn't make it super, super obvious unless you do a special kind of report, which we did. Yeah, I know about that report. Yeah. I've been there. Which we did that one today. Yeah. And that's, we just found out today. Um, it's just a bad timing and all of it. And I guess all I'm asking is if you're still, if you're still interested, in, interested in supporting our show, please just consider going back to Patreon and updating your payment information. Uh, and if you haven't done it and you're still considering it, Maybe now would be a good time. I would also, by the way, Chris, because uh, you know we have the power of the unfilter uh, page there. Uh, you could send a message to all patrons and maybe just drop a blurb about it. Well, because they'll hit yeah. their inbox. And I think Angela's going to do that. You'll all probably right. see something from Ange soon because we just figured it out today. All right. Uh, but so when you go to Patreon.com/unfilter and you see 560 patrons, uh, just remember that 113 of those have not actually paid us for a while, like since December. So I guess the ultimate question is, because I know I, I had a tough decision when I ran the uh, Patreon for Minecraft Me. You have the power, obviously, to remove those patrons and reflect no, that no, number. No no no, 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 but I'm talking about but reflect the number accurately. Oh, 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 we can go in there and change that like, setting? So, so, so you get a list of all the patrons in, in the back office, if you will, in the back, in the dashboard. And if, if someone still hasn't updated their, their card credentials, you can actually remove them as a patron. I don't want to do that. I know though. you don't, but they're not technically a patron if they're not contributing, right? <sighs> I guess we got to get to that conversation at some point because it is putting yeah. out the wrong it's signal. It's putting out the wrong signal. Yeah, <clears> and we're like, saying. yeah. And then and the problem is that number there that, that Patreon posts on the public page is before before fees, before declines. It's Well, yeah, it's... It's one of those things where, yeah, you know, and a lot of you guys, by the way, you probably don't even realize it, too. You know, you put it on autopilot. Yeah, totally. You don't even think about it. I, I, or you, you know, your card changes because yeah. of fraud or something. Because, man, that's happened to me where, like, something looks weird on my account, so they've issued me a new card. Right, exactly. And then you don't think about all the subscriptions that you have. Uh, two final notes here uh, in the sack this week. Our good friend Veratunda chiming in once again saying, hey, sadly... I'm tuned out of the news this week. Been busy doing some deal, uh, do-it-yourself projects. So means early nights for early starts. Mm. I'll watch the show recording sometime later this week. Good for Make him. it a good one. Good Cheers. for him. I'm, that's, I'm really glad to hear he's doing that. I like that stuff. And finally, Deathmindus writes in and says, Hey, anyone notice the strange timing of Trump pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal and the NRA naming Oliver North its new president? The guy that oversaw weapons sales to Tehran to fund Contras in Nicaragua? Strange times. Remember, you can be a part of Club 33, too. You can get right into my sack. Head over to patreon.com slash unfiltered. There's a few uh, Club 33 slots opened up right now. So if you want to jump yep. in, you can do it right now. Yep. And we're still taking your feedbacks, even if you're not in the Club 33. Absolutely. If you just want to let us know what you think, you go to unfiltered.show slash contact. But Club 33 is how you make it into the show. Hey, Mommy. Mommy, what do you need? Mommy? Oh, you know, you know what, mommy, mommy. You know, mommy needs a joy. Okay. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she does. You believe that the actions that you or your company took contributed to the opioid epidemic. Now, this is really the problem. Here is these sons of bitches are not going to take ownership of the very problem they've created. And this was a panel hearing with some of the top opioid distributors in the United States, and only one of the whole batch takes any responsibility for the current situation. Mr. Barrett. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, We're really looking here because I've got a lot of questions, yes or no, uh, and if it's uh, not no. either one. No, sir, I do not believe that we contributed to the opioid crisis. Okay, we'll come back to you then. Uh, uh, doctor, Dr. Mastandria. 
Now, there seems to be a difference between the spokesperson and the doctor. Watch what the doctor says. It's odd, Chase. Yeah. He has a different answer. He has a different take. Yes. Oh. 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 The guy, the, I don't, uh, that guy, I, we're going to find out who he is in a second. He looks over like, oh, whoa, you said yes? Yeah, I know. He was like, oh, shit. Mr. Hammergren. Uh, no. Mr. Smith. I believe H.D. Smith uh, conducted itself responsibly and discharged its obligations. Is that a no? That's a no. Okay, Mr. Collis. Uh, no, I believe we, uh, it's a no for Marisol Spogan. Now, these guys, of course, have been responsible for just ramming these things into the marketplace. So I wanted to play that clip for you because about midway into the next clip, they're going to talk about the opioid crisis. And that's just great context for you to have. But let's start off with something that's happening here in Seattle. The clip's going to get back to opioids. But let's start with something that's happening here in Seattle. And that's a discussion around what to do with all these people that got busted for having pot now that pot's legal in Seattle. Right. They'll nominally get there. Could Michigan be the next state to legalize recreational marijuana? The people in that state will decide. State officials have agreed to let Michiganders vote on the issue come November. The proposal would allow anyone 21 and over to buy marijuana, no medical card required. If voters pass the petition, Michigan would become the first state in the Midwest to make recreational pot legal. Meanwhile, the city of Seattle wants to throw out some past marijuana convictions. That city's attorney filed papers today to do just that. Recreational marijuana is now legal in Washington state. And Seattle wants to throw out misdemeanors for possession from before that law changed. Can marijuana help fix the opioid epidemic? Last year, 45,000 people in the U.S. died from opioids. But how many died from marijuana? Well, exactly zero How can marijuana help? Our Dr. Sanjay Gupta explores this in his new special Weed 4, Pot versus Pills. It'll air this Sunday on CNN. I got into pain medicine at a time when we didn't have very good treatments for pain. Dr. Mark Wallace is the director of the Center for Pain Medicine at UC San Diego. He, like most of us doctors, was taught in medical school to prescribe opioids. We were told that, well, there's evidence that the use of opiates are probably not that risky and that we should use them more liberally. They don't work. It was the 1990s, and doctors were seeing a lot of commercials like this one. These drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. Problem is, while they were FDA-approved for some kinds of pain, they were never intended to be used long-term. We went along with some of the advertisement that was coming around and the education that we were giving in medical schools. Dr. Nora Volka, the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, believes that was the beginning of our opioid crisis. We started to see patients who were prescribed opiates for their pain condition who had never been addicted to anything becoming addicted to those drugs. We knew that there was a danger. We knew that they weren't as effective after a period of time. And yet it still happened anyway. So this is a big special that they have there. Isn't wow. that? Yeah. Yeah. And so I have uh, I have uh, the full version in the supporter sync if you guys want to watch it. Now, uh, there was um, several different stories that I thought we'd end on. I let's let's we'll end on the funnier of the two because there's one that is I don't know, I think it's going to get talked about more. So you hear a lot about cannabis for children that have seizures, yeah, right? Yeah. We've talked about well, that. We've talked about it many times. What about autism? 
that's one I've wondered about, but this story talks a little bit about using cannabis to treat autism. Fighting for their children. They want medical marijuana legalized for kids with autism. They call cannabis a miracle drug that's changed their lives, but others disagree. ABC 15 Sonuwasu is at the State Health Department for us, where an administrative hearing is just wrapping up. Now, you got to remember that uh, cannabis is not just a little illegal in Arizona. It's very illegal. If you get caught driving down the road with cannabis, it's go to jail. Oh, yeah. We are hearing both sides of the argument today. Some who are not comfortable giving cannabis to kids, saying it's not FDA approved and also illegal by federal law. But Uh-oh. on the flip side, emotional testimony from mothers who have children diagnosed with autism who say it just works. Watching your child suffer is the worst thing a mother can go through. Randy Williams' son was diagnosed with severe autism at the age of two. Now, you're not going to get a medical cannabis prescription for autism. Right. So you have to have something else. She tried all the prescription pills, but says they had serious side effects. He was having rages increased with the medication. The state has a long list of qualifying conditions. And because seizures are on the list, Brandy's son was able to get a medical marijuana card, a big shift from a mother who used to laugh at the thought of marijuana as medicine. I thought marijuana was to get you high. Just one dose, and William says she noticed a big change in her child. No more aggression. In the first two months, my son said 180 words. Brandy Williams is just one of many mothers out here today. Could you imagine you, you the, the the change that she sees is so significant in her is so significant in her child that she actually starts counting the words like yeah. the thrill that a mother would have. But that's a new word: one, two, five new words. That's incredible. Twenty new words. Could you imagine how elated she must have oh, been? Bet. And then 50, and then 100 new words? Well, especially going in, and, and that's where at least she started to have an open mind about it. People have these misconceptions, and they already draw up these opinions about it without honestly giving it a chance and looking at the information and data. Yeah. And she, she took the plunge. There's a, lot, there's a lot more on the internet wow. these days about autism and cannabis. I didn't even realize it was a thing, but I just I came across a whole bunch. But I want to end the high note on my favorite cannabis clip this week. Those Canadians are, are definitely always thinking ahead. You know, as soon as you start talking about legal in the pot, they start thinking about what they can do with that legal eye pot. Recreational marijuana. It's going to open up all kinds of new products to the market. Oh, you could tell he's excited, Chase. He's oh, very yeah. Oh, <laughs> of legalized recreational marijuana. It's going to open up all kinds of new products to the market. Aside from the obvious deluge in weed variants, the market will also, well, eventually, open up to edibles. Now we've talked about edibles. It's a huge aspect of the Washington market. It's just a big part of legalized cannabis. Yeah. it's just another big, big segment. Probably not going to happen now until probably about 2019. But the rush to get ahead of that is already well underway. Province Brands is one company developing cannabis-based beverages, intoxicating drinks. The company says will be both safer and healthier than alcohol. In fact, it recently got the blessing of the Ontario government in the form of a three hundred thousand dollar grant. Company CEO. Could you imagine? You're going to get into <laughs> you're going to get into yeah. pot as a yeah. job, which is going to be a money maker, and you get a grant to get it going for three hundred thousand. They got the blessing Yowzes. of the Ontario government in the form of a $300,000 grant. <laughs> I just can't even with that. I know. I, I would launch, if I was in Canada right now and I wasn't podcasting, I would seriously try to launch a IT company that specializes in IT infrastructure and secure networks for cannabis businesses 
and I would try to get that grant money. I mean, yeah. give me a break. That's Totally. In fact, it recently got the blessing of the Ontario government in the form of a $300,000 grant. Company CEO Duma Wenchuk joins us now to tell us more about this venture. Thanks for coming in. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, tell us first what this product is. It, is it like sort of cannabis beer, basically? Oh, basically. No. All right, there you go. <laughs> it's going to be huge. Cannabis beer, everybody. $300,000 to get it started. <laughs> yeah, Brilliant. for an idea that's obvious. That's right. exactly what it is. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly what and it I is. I had like a six-pack, <laughs> and it was amazing. Did, is it like sort of cannabis beer, basically? Oh, basically. <laughs> there you go. I'm sold. Done. That's, that's all you need to say. All right. Well, Mr. Nunes. Yes, Chris. We're back. The Unfiltered Show, the show is strong. It's live. It's raw. Maybe it's sometimes late, a little inappropriate. Late-breaking. Where can they get it? Well, they can get it over at unfilter.show. That's I right. Mean, really, that's the place you can go and, and grab links it. for everything we talked about, backup links, additional information, unfilter.show slash 279. Boom. That's easy stuff. And the feed, unfilter.show slash RSS. You plug that into your favorite podcast catcher. You get every single episode right as it comes out, unfilter.show slash RSS. Even more important, as I'm on the road to Texas, we'll tell you more about that soon, but unfilter.show is the main resource to go to. Easy way to go. What if they want a little more newness? You know, they can do the whole Twitter thing. You no. Know, at newness, N-U-N-E-S. You can go there. Not enough. Not enough? Well, you can head over to geekgamer.tv. You can check out the Discord. There's links there on the website, Twitter, Facebook, all that fun stuff. Mm, okay. Now, now, Chris, you do the Twitter thing too, right? That's true. I have. What's that address? From time to time, at Chris LAS for myself. The whole damn network's at Jupiter Signal. Announcements about live shows, new releases, anything that changes at Jupiter Signal. Really, even if you're not a Twitter user, I don't blame you. You can still just read the feed. That's right. Easy to see. Yeah, very much Pull so. Pull up on a phone somewhere. And this here show is live on Wednesdays. You can watch it at jblive.tv. The calendar is at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Woo! And again, you can send us your thoughts, your feedback at unfilter.show slash contact. And stick around. The overtime's coming up. But if you got to go. We understand your meat, your potatoes, your veggies, they're done. You don't have any room for pie. So we'll see you right back here next next week. Mommy needs a joint. Because the show's not over yet. No, it's time for overtime. And I know that each of you understand you have the power. Stay woke. Yes. Yes, good advice. Yes, thank you to our new patrons, who indeed stay woke. We have a whole bunch of you, because we were gone last week. I want to say thank you to Matthew, Sam, Chris, Kawabanon. Sorry, I probably got that one wrong. Sorry about that. Jacob, Harpo, which reminds me of the company Oprah owns. Lauren, Christopher B., Daniel D., Joshua M., Samuel C., and J.A. Reagan, R., you guys, new patrons, 
thank you for supporting this year's show. We really appreciate you. Hope this overtime segment does right by you, your contributions, your faith in us. We really appreciate every single one of you. Patreon.com slash unfilter. Thanks so much for making this show possible. Now, I've dedicated this segment to you and all of our future patrons, so let me get into that. Now, we'd like to do the O Nancy segment right here at the beginning of the overtime, but if you recall towards the beginning of the O Nancy segment, its origins really were about the primaries, about Democrats winning or losing maybe in the midterms. Like the future of the party was someone like Nancy Pelosi at the head. And that's still a topic that's being debated even today. Welcome back. Many Republicans today are probably thanking House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi for what they think is a gift that she gave them yesterday when she said this to the Boston Globe. We will win. I will run for speaker. I feel confident about it. And my members do, too. Her reasoning? She said it's important that it not be five white guys at the table. No offense. At the time, she's referring to the two House leaders, DNR, the two Senate leaders, DNR, and the president. The House is absolutely up for grabs this fall. There's no doubt about it. Democrats have a pretty good chance of retaking it. Some give their odds greater than 50 percent. But does this kind of talk help them or hurt them? You can absolutely expect that comment from Pelosi is going to show up in Republican ads all over the country. As we talked about it before, Pelosi brings in a lot of dollars for Democrats and she keeps her caucus in line. But she's also a favorite target of the GOP and in many ways represents an entrenched establishment she, since she's been in Congress for over 30 years. And of course, there's her unpopularity nationwide in our March poll of American political figures, including Paul Ryan and Donald Trump and both parties. Pelosi was dead last with a net negative rating of 22 points. Joining me now is Democratic strategist Joel Benenson, a former strategist and pollster for both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Mr. Benenson, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Chuck. So there's a, there is a, a debate that gets restarted inside the Democratic Party right now um, since Nancy Pelosi lost the speakership about every three or four months, which is, does she help or hurt Democratic Party's chances in these House races? Her saying what she's saying, a lot of Democrats are having to tell their voters, I'm not supporting her. What does this do? Good, bad, indifferent, where are you? Well, I think, I think where we're sitting today here in late eight, early May, actually, I think Nancy Pelosi is not going to be the issue in this campaign going forward. The House is competitive for one reason only. Uh, the Republicans from Trump down through McConnell, who, by the way, is the least popular senator mm-hmm. uh, in the country, right, has approval ratings as bad as Nancy Pelosi's in the morning consult mm-hmm. poll. However, his numbers are, are that bad because of Republican voters. They're not as many. His numbers are actually better with the middle. Here's the other thing. When we get down to voting in November, Mm -hmm. the reason Democrats really have a shot at the House is because the number of suburban districts, not just swing districts, suburban districts in states like New York, upstate, Mm -hmm. New Jersey, where Rodney Freelinghausen has stepped down, the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, California. If you add up those suburban districts where you've got a high population of college-educated voters, college-educated women, we're going to get halfway to 24 or the 23 we need right there. <laughs> there you go. That's how they're looking at it. Nancy makes a lot of money. She makes a lot of money. And so uh, she says, look, I'm a woman, and there's not enough women in power, and uh, I'm the number one fundraiser, so uh, why would you get rid of me? Why would you? And I'm sitting here going, oh, Nancy, if you only understood how you're viewed by the outside world. The only other person that might be denser on that particular topic is uh, your good buddy, Hillary Clinton. You may be the only uh, presidential candidate since World War II that actually had to stand up and say, I am a capitalist. (laughs) Uh, And you did. Uh, Did it hurt you? 
Probably. I mean, you know, it's, it's, hard. <laughs> it's hard to know, but I mean, if you're in the Iowa caucuses and 41% of Democrats are uh, socialists or self-described <laughs> socialists, and I'm asked, are you a capitalist? And I say, yes, but with appropriate regulation and appropriate uh, uh, accountability, uh, you know, that, that probably gets lost in the, oh my gosh, she's a capitalist. I, I mean, so that's another reason why Hillary Clinton lost the election, ladies and gentlemen, is because she's a capitalist. Now, there is someone out there making a siren call to the Democrats, and uh, it's, it's sophisticated. It's sly, and it's really in your face. Sorry. So let's, let's keep it with the president now, and then I'll go to Michael Cohen. What do you think this means legally, if anything, for the president? Well, I, I, this is Stormy Daniels' lawyer. I think that this shows that the president has significant potential criminal liability for felonies associated with campaign finance violations, as well as potential money laundering violations, as well as potential fraud violations relating to these, these law firm invoices that we've now heard about. Uh -oh. I mean, this, this opens the Pandora's box, if you will, into serious, serious issues for Donald Trump. I said it weeks ago. I'm going to say it again. Mr. Trump will not serve out his term no way know how he will be forced to ultimately resign this is oh see that's the call right there work with me empower me come to me i can make this happen the problem is is i sense that people are smarter than all of this people don't care if you know a decade ago trump was screwing a porn star and then maybe had his lawyer pay him off they just don't really care anymore i think bill clinton broke everybody's cherry on that and people don't buy the Russia stuff. They're just not buying that it's because of the Russians that Hillary lost. And so the, the youngins, the youngins, the young generation, I, I don't think they're buying it. I think people that are all in on a political narrative, you'll hear it. You've probably heard, you probably know someone in your life. I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm a lifelong Democrat. I'm a lifelong insert whatever. And when somebody says that, what they're saying is this is my belief structure and I'm all in on it. I've been like this my whole life. I'm all in on it. I, the only thing I have been all in on my entire life is boobs and Star Trek. I, I am, maybe I have a weak moral character, but I just, I have not really been all in on anything that I would say, I'm, oh, I'm a, the only thing I'm lifelong is a Star Trek fan. Lifelong on Star Trek and I'll, more than half my life on the boobs. So when someone says they're a lifelong Democrat, they're telling you that they have a belief system. The issue is the youngins. The younger generation doesn't necessarily have that same belief system. And so they're able to see through what is otherwise obvious political bullcrap, like some of this Russia investigation stuff. And the younger people might actually even say, oh, well, yeah, there was a phishing attack. John Podesta was fished. That could have been the Russians. Could have been anybody. Could have been the CIA. They're not buying it as easily. Next generation politics could spell trouble for the Democrats in the U.S., according to recent polls. It's revealed Americans born after 1995, or Generation Z as they're being called, have more conservative leanings than older voters had at the same age. A survey of over 50,000 people under the age of 23 shows increasing support for the Republican Party, while a large number of them would also back Donald Trump's re-election in 2020. That's coming from the Hispanic Heritage Foundation. And uh, now RT is interpreting that as ha they have more conservative leanings. I interpret that as a larger and larger percentage of, uh, what did she call them? I forget the ridiculous generation label. A larger percentage of that demo, that group, is just not buying the Democrats' 
propaganda anymore is how I view it. I don't know if I necessarily think they're more conservative. Uh, that perhaps could be looked into further, but I think they're not buying it. Yeah. I don't know. I th- maybe I'm wrong. Could be totally off. Maybe it's, um, you know, maybe they've all gotten the, the, the conservative bug and uh, they think Trump's making America great again. But the thing that strikes me about that survey <laughs> was that it was from the, uh, oh, I probably should, I should, it's up there in the lower third here, uh, Hispanic Heritage Foundation. That's what it was. Seems like if they were going to have a bias, it wouldn't be one that leans towards everybody being more conservative, especially with Trump's border wall stuff. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. It's like an unlikely source. So it kind of has me a little like, hmm, that's strange. Speaking of unlikely sources, Mueller's had a few unlikely sources. (laughs) Ooh, we now know that the FBI didn't believe that Michael Flynn lied to agents during his interview about his conversations with Russia's ambassador to the United States. But the special counsel prosecuted Trump's former national security advisor for making false statements to the FBI anyway. That duplicity was revealed Friday when key redactions were removed from the House Intel report on the Russia investigation. To tell us why all this matters and what it means from New York is former federal prosecutor Andy McCarthy. Andy, uh, this is so wild. Why these redactions are being done the justification for continuing to remove critical exculpatory information from these documents. Exculpatory. I'll, I'll save you the, the arduous process of listening more, and I'll just tell you what they, what they removed and what they re-added. So these are um, – kind of, she kind of made it hard to understand, but these are uh, unredactions? Deredactions? I don't know what the term is for uh, when you deredact. <laughs> um, uh, these are unredacted statements that were in that initial uh, Nunes memo. That was their findings that we covered weeks ago. And what they unredacted was the uh, information about Michael Flynn that basically said that the FBI did not believe he lied. The FBI did not believe he lied during their questioning, which was the linchpin of why they threw the book at him. And speaking of people they're throwing the book at, I'm all about that right now. Speaking of, (laughs) Jill Stein's getting the book thrown at her still. Remember Jill Stein? The Green Party candidate from the election that we're all trying to forget. She's still still dealing with Russia stuff and Russia smearing. And I'm all like, that's ridiculous. And then she does a horrible job of answering these questions. And it wasn't until after I saw this, I'm like, uh, how could she have blown this so badly? I went from not being suspicious of Jill Stein to going, is she hiding something? I'll let you decide. 2016 Green Party candidate Jill Stein refusing to fully comply with the Senate Intelligence Committee's Russia investigation. Stein uh, and the campaign is turning over some documents, have done so already, related to her campaign's contacts with Russia, but they're holding back others. Dr. Jill Stein joins us now. Appreciate you taking the opportunity. Great to be with you, Chris. Yeah, it's good to see you again, doctor. So you know what the implication is. If you don't fully comply, that means you're hiding something. And if you're hiding something that makes people suspicious that maybe you had something to do with the Russian interference. Well, let's um, let's get the facts straight. We complied with everything actually relevant to the question of Russian interference. We turned over all of our communications with Russian media, Russian government, 
Russian business, although there was no communications to turn over. Likewise, anything having to do with WikiLeaks or with opposition research or Fusion GPS, we actually fulfilled all the requests. Most of them were blank. We didn't have any such communications. And what we did have with Russian government and media was really related to what time we were going to show up for an RT appearance and the logistics of our trip to the um, uh, conference in Moscow with RT. So all of that was turned over. What we didn't turn over was material that basically protects the civil liberties of all Americans. So at a time when our civil liberties are really being seriously eroded, for example, the, uh, the use of our private data you know, we have a privacy so protection. That's now, this is uh, my first warning sign right here is she's running the clock. And that's a bad sign. That's a I'm trying to avoid getting additional questions. I'm going to dominate the conversation. And Kumo here, he, you know, he's been around long enough that somebody's learned to walk around and hit him with a stick to tell him to ask her a question. Part of our civil liberties. But that's been horribly violated. Ask 87 million Americans have basically had their data taken. And there are up to 2,000 data points on every American that are being used. I hear you about that. That's certainly a concern. Uh, We've been covering it and the potential need for regulation and what will the industry do. However, back to you. Uh, What did you not turn over in the name of civil liberties? Exactly. Exactly. So what we did not turn over, and I should add, we also turned over our policy positions, which were the same as what we said publicly. And she's not answering the question again. Mm -hmm. uh, Throughout the campaign, so there was nothing hidden there. We turned over our policy. What we did not turn over was our internal discussions about policy, which were really no great shakes because there was not really not not much difference between the policies that the Green Party has held for a long time and the policies of the campaign. So it's not like there's some, you know, special golden goose that we're protecting here or some vulnerable conversation, but rather we're standing up on a principle. I think you get the point. And she just sort of continues to evade um, for about another five minutes and 10 seconds. Isn't that odd? Uh, they just keep hitting her with the same questions over and over again. And... She dodges. Why did she have to make it weird? Like, it wasn't weird until Jill made it weird, and now it's weird. I don't understand why Jill made it weird. It's weird now, and I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of that. I also don't know what to make of all of these former CIA guys that are just media stars now. You got your good buddy Mike Morrell. Talk about him all the time. And, of course, Michael Hayden, your best buddy, the one that was involved with flipping the switch for NSA surveillance while Bush was in office. They're out all the time chatting about stuff. They're never afraid to uh, pull punches when it comes to Trump. And Hayden says that Trump doesn't seem to base decisions on objective reality, and he's going to write a book to prove it. President Trump was elected, at least in part, on a promise to upend the way Washington and its bureaucracies work. That gave pause to some in the nation's intelligence community, including retired Air Force General Michael Hayden, who during the George W. Bush administration served consecutively as director of the National Security Agency and the CIA. In his new book, The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in the Age of Lies, he critiques the president's campaign tactics, his behavior, and his governing style, especially as it relates to the nation's secrets and its spies. General Hayden, welcome back to the news hour. Thank you. So you worked in a Republican administration, but you're 
pretty tough on President Trump. Yeah, actually, I, I, I try to appear and be apolitical. I was actually a Clinton appointee to NSA, but indeed, I am fairly uh, tough on, on the president. Um, Judy, I, I look at this as kind of a three-layer cake. And so let me begin at the base layer, which is not Donald Trump. Oh. Uh, the base layer is us. Oh. All right? Yeah. We have entered what the Oxford Dictionary calls a post-truth world. You see how smooth he's being, how calm he is? And this smooth, serene Hayden gets even more calm and more smooth as the interview goes on. Us. All right? So let me begin at the base layer, which is not Donald Trump. All right. Uh, the base layer is us. Oh. All right. We have entered what the Oxford Dictionary calls a post-truth world, uh, a world in which decision making is less dependent on data and facts and more dependent on the emotion, preference, uh, grievances, loyalty, tribalism. And what President Trump did as a candidate, he identified that. That sounds like the culture of the CIA. Sounds like the culture of the CIA has infected politics. That's what it sounds like he's describing to me tribalism and what president trump did as a candidate he identified that he exploited that and frankly and here's the the, the crux of the of the book uh, as president he seems to worsen that and then you've got those two layers i got a third layer of the cake that's somewhat troubling as well uh-huh. and that's a foreign power the russians no yeah yeah the russians not saudi arabia not israel no, it's the Russians. The cake that's somewhat troubling as well. And that's a foreign power, the Russians, right. kind of coming in through the perimeter wire, right. taking advantage of all that I just described. What? The perimeter wire, coming in through the perimeter wire there. Coming in through the perimeter wire, taking advantage of all that I just described. What is the problem that you have, the criticism you have of his relationship with the intelligence community? He's been very critical at times. At times. Uh, And and frankly, though, in the the phrase we would use at CIA, the intel community right now is a little bit off of the X. Department of Justice and the FBI are on the X. What do you mean? I mean, they are the target of the president's criticism of both institutions and, and people. But that shouldn't be comforting to the people in the intelligence community because you have a president here who seems to emphasize loyalty, personal loyalty to him over the norms that have governed these institutions for decades, if, if not centuries. The irony in the hypocrisy here is that the CIA is known for once you join the CIA, you're in the CIA for life. Even if you are not lo- you're no longer on the payroll, you've retired, you've quit, you've been fired, you're still a CIA agent for life. You go there as a summer intern, you're still a CIA agent. Because once you become part of the culture, once you're inside the circle of trust, you never go outside the circle of trust. And if you do, they'll ram your Mercedes into a tree. So that could easily be turned to the intelligence community as well. How do you know that this president is so very different from other presidents in his relationship to the intelligence? So to be very fair, I've never briefed President Trump. I've briefed President Bush, President Obama. And I I go to great pains in the book to point out it's our job to accommodate the president. We've had presidents who's argued with us, who have argued with us. Uh, We've we've had uh, presidents, frankly, who may not have told the truth either. This is a president, and this is the distinction, who seems to make some decisions based on something other than a view of objective reality. Here it is. He's based decisions on some other criteria. Back to that basic layer of a post-truth world. 
One of the many things you write about, General Hayden, is uh, the so-called Steele dossier. This was the document, the report prepared by the former British intelligence agent, Christopher Steele. Uh, You know him. You've uh, looked at that. How credible is it? And I'm asking because Republicans in the Congress have have discounted it. They say it was paid for by the Democrats. It's not worth the paper it's written on. So I don't know Chris Steele. I know people who have worked with him. Uh, He he was a solid officer for MI6. But, Judy, when I read that document, a couple of thoughts, right, when it became public. Number one, that sounds like us. It it, it has the patois of, of an intelligence report. All right. So it was familiar language to me. But if we had produced that, we'd have had in bold letters at the top and the bottom, this is not finally evaluated intelligence. This is raw information. It would have been the beginning of a process, not right. the end. And, and you're, but, you're, but you're saying it wouldn't have been completely discounted. Oh, oh no, no. What we would have done, we'd have gone oh, yeah. through every particular proposition. We'd have said, who's the source? Would the source be expected to know? Has the source reported reliably in the past? And do we have other information that would sustain or not sustain that data point? And frankly, that, I think, is what's now going on with Bob Mueller and others. Bob. Well, speaking of, of, of Robert Mueller's special counsel, so much to ask you about here. There's a lot, in fact, everything we don't know about what he has learned. But we do know there have been an unusual number of communications, connections between people around President Trump and Russian officials. Is it that unusual? I think people are looking at that and saying, is that something we should be paying this much attention to? So, uh, yes, the the answer is is yes, from my point of view. Remember, the the Mueller investigation has gotten pretty broad now, but, but its origins its origins are in a counterintelligence investigation. It is what were the Russians trying to do, and did anyone over here engage in in helping them? So we do have, I I think, an extraordinary number of contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russian security services. And we know for a fact what the Russians were trying to do. Now the question becomes for Director Mueller, in those connections, is, is that born out of naivete, out of ignorance, or something darker. I thought it was a kind of an interesting interview. It goes on for a few more minutes, about three more minutes, if you want to watch it uh, in the supporter sync. Post-truth era sticks out to me there. Also, uh, what sticks out to me is his description of the way Trump makes decisions. He says he doesn't seem to have any objective reality he bases on. He bases it on something else, but then doesn't say what it is. I actually kind of agree with that assessment, that one thing, you know, like they can, you know, with all of these guys, they come on the air, they say a hundred things. There's a good chance 70 of them are true. You know, I'm just throwing, I'm just making up random numbers here, but you get my, you get my point, right? My emphasis here is like some of these things they say are on point. Some of these things are from a belief system. Some of these things are because they're trying to get you to believe a certain narrative. You never really know, but some of it's true. And I kind of agree with his assessment of Trump. And he, being the former director of the NSA and the CIA, is probably pretty good at calculating somebody's process. I don't know. I mean, he's got experience with both Bush and Obama, so it's possible. But let's uh, let's refresh the palate. You've ever been into a candle shop where you're sniffing a bunch of candles and they give you like a, like a little uh, dish, a ramekin? Ramekins. They give you a little ramekin of coffee, and you you sniff the coffee beans, and it's just sort of the beans just sort of reset the old palate. Well, that's what we're going to do with a little Cold War propaganda. So we're going to go from somebody who creates the propaganda to now some of the propaganda itself, just to reset the old palate, get you sharp again. 
Ahead of Vladimir Putin's inauguration Monday, Russia staged a military parade in Moscow's Red Square. Some of the weapons on display are likely being used in an ongoing battle between Russian-backed forces and Ukrainian troops backed by the U.S. military. Holly Williams has more on what's being called the Forgotten War. So now they quickly slip in there that we're also backing the troops. So you got Russia backing one set of troops, but that's bad. And then you got us backing what obviously are the good guys because hoorah, we're America. It was an ambush in a frozen pine forest. Russian-backed separatists surprised these Ukrainian soldiers. In the chaos, they took cover and fought back. But they fired blanks. What? This was an exercise run by the U.S. military. What? This is a counterattack exercise, and these Ukrainian soldiers will be heading to the real front line very soon. You know, this is how it works, is they do these exercises. They let the media come, and the media feels like it's so badass. They're out there in the snow. They're around all these soldiers in uniforms with guns, which, you know... These people from Hollywood and New York, they don't they're not a, they're not normally around guns like this. Some people that listen to the show, you're you're in parts of the country where you've got a gun in the house right now. When you're listening to the show, you're near a gun. You're literally near a gun right now listening to the show. You see in to them, they they go the majority of their life without ever seeing a gun unless it's on television. So to actually be around people that are proficient with these machineries, that are trained up, that speak the lingo, that talk, you know, talk that talk, and to be really where somewhere where things, real history is actually happening is intoxicating for these people. They can't help but get swooped up into it all. And they get excited, they bring the cameras, and they get lots of footage, lots of really intense stuff, and you would have had no idea that was a fake out. Because it's exactly, exactly what they play for the real stuff. Because when they go on these training exercises, they get shit tons of B-roll, and then this is the crap they loop all the time, and this is what we see. And it's not real. It's pretend. It's play. They're shooting blanks. And this is the big buildup. Ahead of Vladimir Putin's inauguration Monday, Russia staged a military parade in Moscow's Red Square. So we're talking about Russia. We're seeing B-roll of military equipment and soldiers parading. Some of the weapons on display are likely being used in an ongoing battle between Russian-backed forces and Ukrainian troops. Now you see how weak that link is? So Putin's election, military parade... Oh, um, some of this stuff in the parades probably being used in Ukraine. And then boom, hard into a battle. Backed by the U.S. military. Holly Williams has more on what's being called the Forgotten War. It was an ambush in a frozen pine forest. Russian-backed separatists surprised these Ukrainian soldiers. This is minutes into the report. So you've gotten parades... You've gotten military weaponry. You've gotten the forgotten war in Ukraine. You've gotten the frozen terrain. This is programming. In the chaos, they took cover and fought back. But they fired blanks. This was an exercise run by the U.S. military. This is a counterattack exercise, 
and these Ukrainian soldiers will be heading to the real front line very soon. It's so exciting. The U.S. is supporting its ally, Ukraine, in a war against Russian-backed militants. They've seized swaths of territory in eastern Ukraine since 2014 in a conflict that's killed 10,000 people by some counts. Apache 6, Apache 6. Soldiers from the New York Army National Guard directed the training, which is... National Guard. Can you believe that? Soldiers from the New York Army National Guard directed the training. The New York Army National Guard. It's poor bastards. Which is close to real life. Lieutenant Colonel William Murphy has been here since November and told us the Ukrainians don't have the equipment they need. What they can do with the little that they have is exceptional. The U.S. is ramping up its support for Ukraine. More than 200 anti-tank missiles were delivered this month. They learned from us the newest experience of the hybrid war against Russia, and we learned from them the tactics and strategy which make my army much more efficient. Ukraine's president, Petro Poroshenko, wants more weapons from the U.S. And <laughs> you see, we got to. Because Putin's doing parade. And UN peacekeepers. Putin just got elected. He told us his country is the front line in a new Cold War with Russia. They want to have Soviet Union back. So you think and, that uh, Vladimir Putin wants to reconquer Ukraine? What does that have to do with anything? This, this, is, this is bullshit. The Ukrainian's government was overthrown. This guy is our lapdog that we had put in. Crimea had a pre-existing deal with Russia. This is all documented. Fuck the EU. Reconquer Ukraine, rebuild right, Russian Empire, whatever you want. I got the documents! Ukraine <laughs> says thousands of Russians are fighting in the east, while Moscow has repeatedly denied it's involved. Colonel Dennis Dealey, who's leading the American trainers, is also reminded of the Cold War. The Ukrainians use old Soviet-era tanks, the type the Russian enemy used when he served in Europe in the 1980s. Oh, mm, yeah. So there you go. You see, I wanted to get you a little propaganda to make you feel a little better, to get your, to get your mind sharp, to get you sharp. So I'm heading down to Texas here in a couple of weeks, and uh, I don't know exactly the route I'm taking yet, but I'm hoping to meet up with a few of the Unfiltered audience members, and then I'm going to Texas Linux Fest which is going to be down in Austin, Texas in June. And I would love to see you there if you're in the Austin area and would like to come out and say hi. I know it's a Linux fest, but uh, that'll be a great place for us to meet up if you could make it. It's June 8th and the 9th, Texas Linux Fest. I'll be there hanging out with my buddies from Linux Academy. Angela's going to fly in, going to bring the kiddos. It should be a really good time. And so since we're talking about Texas, you know what that means we got to figure out what's going on with the cannabis market down there. Because if I'm coming to town, I mean... <laughs> 7.38 right now on a Tuesday morning, legalizing marijuana. Not in the cards here in Texas anytime oh. soon, but some people are preparing for that day. Uh, the Just DFW Academy of Cannabis Science is signing up students, and Fox 4's Cell Garza has more. It took about 18 months of work. State Representative Stephanie Click of Fort Worth pushed to get the Compassionate Use Act passed by the Texas legislature. It allows certain epilepsy patients to take medicinal marijuana oil. It's made a huge difference, she says, for the family of one patient. She was having 30 to 40 seizures a day. She's now having one to two seizures a month. 
In Dallas and Tarrant counties, only six neurologists can prescribe medicinal marijuana oil. Statewide, only three businesses are licensed to cultivate and dispense low-dose THC marijuana. There's a lot of mystery surrounding cannabis. The people want to know about it. Just come talk to me. They want to be in this industry. But what we've found is there, there aren't that many educational opportunities for people. Holly Law saw an opportunity and started the DFW Academy of Cannabis Science. Anything and everything you've ever wanted to know about marijuana. This is all about science. Um, our focus is on the therapeutic and the medicinal benefits of this incredible plant. Mommy needs a joint. Students can learn about the cultivation, dispensing, and oil extraction of the cannabis plant. Hey the class is also aimed at clearing the air about medicinal marijuana. <laughs> cannabis is a, a family of plants. It includes hemp and marijuana. They are very similar, but they're not the same. It's like their sisters are not twins. There you go. I like it. So Texas, at least they got their head in the right space. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's going to be there in time, though. Um, now let's uh, let's have a moment with Trump. Let's wrap up the overtime. Let's wrap it up. Let's start getting. Let's start getting in the uh, upright position. I'm going to turn off the, uh, the 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 sign up there on the plane. Going to put on the buckle your seat. The the smoking thing goes off. Which I don't even have those anymore. And we're going to talk about Donald Trump for a few moments before we get out of here. And um, just everything about this clip I love because it's just it's first of all. It's classic Trump. It's so, so classic Trump. Second of all, it means undoubtedly a new segment for the show is just going to be around the corner. And that's always extremely exciting. And I wonder how many people collectively crapped their pants back in the White House when they were watching a live stream of Donald Trump saying this. So the, the, the crap your pants factor has got to be high on this one. The lessons you've learned on what General Douglas MacArthur called the fields of friendly strife you will soon put into service for our nation. I know that each of you will serve with the same commitment, determination, and character that have earned you distinction on the gridiron. You will be courageous members of the long gray line that stretches back to the earliest days of our republic. You will be part of the five proud branches of the United States Armed Forces. You can feel it coming right now, can't you? You know it's coming. Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and the Coast Guard. And we're actually thinking of a sixth. Hello, everybody. And that would be the Space Force. Does that make sense? The Space Force, General. You probably haven't even heard that. I'm just telling you now. This is perhaps because we're getting very big in space both militarily and for other reasons. And we are seriously thinking of the Space Force. Mommy needs a And you'll join the greatest force (laughs) for peace and justice the world has ever known. No, no. You will keep us safe. Oh, the Space Force. Oh, man. And if if that uh, if that just whetted your appetite, then uh, this moment it's a moment for Trump. This is for you, Don. If you're watching the Unfiltered podcast, uh, this is Adam Schiff having to give you a moment's credit, which uh, was pretty great to watch. Because I want to play what President Trump had to say just last night about all of this. They were saying, "What do you think uh, President Trump had to do with it?" I'll tell you what. Like, how about everything? 
Okay, so I don't imagine you agree that he has everything to do with this, but doesn't the president deserve credit for at least partial credit for what we're seeing unfold on the Korean Peninsula? Uh, John, I think it's more than fair to say that the combination of the president's unpredictability and indeed his bellicosity uh, had something to do with the North Koreans deciding uh, to come to the table. That would be nice, you know, right there. If Adam had just left it at that after years of attacking Donald now, uh, over every little thing, he could have left it there. But before the president takes too much credit or hangs out the mission accomplished banner, uh, he needs to realize that uh, we may go into a confrontational phase and he may not want the full blame uh, if things go south. Uh, so he ought to be a little circumspect about that. But most important for this president is when things do become confrontational, as is likely to happen, it's going to be very important that we are lashed up with our allies, South Korea and Japan. Otherwise, North Korea will pick us apart. And this president isn't particularly good about lashing up with our allies. And also mentioned you didn't get Iran agreement uh, with the secretary. But if we walk away from that Iran deal, it will not only make it much more difficult to get to yes with the North Koreans, but it will also breed a lot of distrust with our South Korean allies about whether they can rely. There you go. So uh, he could have kept it, but no. Yeah. So sorry, Don. Sorry. Uh, but this was my favorite moment in Trump. And uh, we'll wrap it with this because it's it's precious. It will not be there. No. You deserve the Nobel Prize, do you think? Everyone thinks so, but I would never say it. <laughs> <laughs> One more time. No. You deserve the Nobel Prize, do you think? Everyone thinks so, but I would never say it. <laughs> <laughs> One more time. You deserve the Nobel Prize, do you think? Everyone thinks so, but I would never say it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's good every single time. It's good every single time. Everyone thinks so, but I would never say it. Everyone thinks so, but I would never say it. <laughs>